I'm up here, Maurice. Ed? Up here. Where? Morning, Maurice. What the hell are you doing up there? I don't know. You don't know? I've been trying to reconstruct events, and I remember I flossed my teeth, then I went in the bedroom, put out the lights. Ed, why don't you come down from there before you break your neck? Okay, Maurice. Well? I need a ladder, Maurice. Lee, when was the last time you climbed a tree? Oh, man. So I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast before, but I do have a, a severe fear of heights. It's kind of hard for me to even step onto the higher rungs of a ladder. Really? Um, trees, depending on like if it's a low-hanging branch, if you count that, maybe it's been uh, this summer that I did that, but that's not really climbing a tree. That's just kind of stepping onto a, a low-hanging branch. <laughs> but what? What are you a are you a tree climber? No, absolutely not. But it's not because I have like a fear of uh, heights. It's just that the opportunity has never really presented itself to me. Well, I mean, you. What do you mean the opportunity? Like you don't have to like save a cat from a tree, but I mean you you can decide when you want to climb a tree. You have a tree in your backyard? Well, not, not anymore. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, that is true. I do not have a tree anymore. They all got removed during a hurricane. Right, but. No, like the branches have to be low enough for you to like pick yourself up onto that tree. You, like you can't just shimmy up a tree mm, just like on the trunk yeah, and just go all the way up. You might need a ladder to get started, but uh, I don't know if you're if you find handholds. Look, we're both we're obviously both not tree climbers, so we don't <laughs> know how to do it properly. Uh, we're not going to try. Uh, but I think in this episode we'll find out. It's not that Ed is climbing trees; he might be flying into trees somehow. I guess we'll get to it when we when we dive into the episode. But Charles, we're we're the Northern Overexposure Podcast. This is season five, the premiere uh, episode of season five in Northern Exposure. But our podcast, uh, if you're just listening for the first time or rejoining us here, let us remind you that it's our mission statement to overanalyze the TV series Northern Exposure. And each episode, we like to bring on someone at the end to hear about their thoughts. Usually it's someone who has never seen the show before. So this is sort of our mission to introduce this classic show to someone new, one episode at a time. I've seen the show a number of times. It's kind of one of my favorite series. And Charles, this is your first time watching each episode. That's right. This is my first time watching every single episode with fresh eyes right here. So Charles, we're in our season five of the podcast. Uh, we took a bit of a hiatus, but what have we been doing in the interim? Yeah. So we've been continuing the Patreon, patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure podcast. And we've also produced and written a video essay. And this video essay is not exclusive to the Patreon. Uh, it's just on our YouTube channel. Our YouTube channel is Northern Overexposure Podcast. And you can find us discussing the season one, episode three, Soapy Sanderson episode. And in that video essay, we talk about the themes of sides and identity, particularly like the many sides that we see in the townsfolk and the ones that aren't seen on the surface level. Yeah. And that's like you said, it's free for everyone. You don't have to be a Patreon subscriber. You can check it out on YouTube. And it's just a kind of a nice mix up. Uh, it's not just audio format. Now you can see visually what we're talking about. And um, yeah, we chose that episode because it's an early one and we think it's a very important one for the series as a whole. Like it's kind of a very important moment early on that sort of ignites a lot of what is happening in uh, Northern Exposure. Right. It's a 
arguably like the first quote unquote northern exposure ish northern <laughs> exposure episode right there. It's where Ed decides to pursue a career in filmmaking. It's where we see the relationship between Joel and Maggie really develop. And like you said, a lot of the times on the podcast, we talk about these scenes and we say like, oh, in this scene, like X and Y happens and you got, we can only paint you a picture with our words. (laughs) It's kind of bad radio when we can't, it's like, (laughs) you can't see it, but we're trying to describe it to you verbally. In this one, in this particular format, you can see, and we try to demonstrate exactly what's going on with the visual subtext and how the script is coming alive with the filmography. All right, let's get back to today's episode. Now, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this because I've seen this episode and I saw the credits, but it looks like we got someone new. It looks like uh, someone by the name of David Chase. David Chase joins uh, Northern Exposure this series um, as the executive producer. You'll know David Chase from his work on The Sopranos. I believe he's the creator of The Sopranos, like showrunner of that entire series. I'm slightly familiar with The Sopranos. I've seen a few episodes, but obviously I'm not. Uh, as much of a diehard fan in that I haven't seen the entire series. I understand, I guess the, the series finale has been spoiled for me. That's That was like a big deal in TV. Do you know? I should, we no, shouldn't talk about it. absolutely not. I, I actually, I don't know anything about The Sopranos <laughs> other than like, is it even, is Gabagool it based in, or? Yeah, Ga- <laughs> I know Gabagool, is it even based in New York or is it based in New Jersey? Uh, I, <laughs> I would say, I would guess New Jersey, but um I don't know. <laughs> uh, I wanted to get us some gabagool for this episode, though I guess that's kind of a stretch. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with Sopranos. It's just David Chase joining the series. Well, Charles, I was talking about this earlier because you know I took a screenshot of the credits that you're talking about where you see David's Ch- David Chase's name is the first thing that appears at the end of the episode. Uh, and I wanted to talk a little bit about David Chase. I posted that screenshot on Twitter and Facebook because I kind of kind of figured that it would get a reaction from diehard fans of Northern Exposure seem to uh, have a strong dislike for David Chase. Oh, let me read, let me read that one comment. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) From at Steve Valley, she says, David Chase can suck it for what he did to my show. (laughs) Apparently he hated its lack of antagonists. So in turn manufactured conflict, which changed the personalities of some of the characters, some strong episodes, thanks to dedicated writers, but also some painfully bad ones. So yeah, I think uh, it's obvious a lot of people are upset with what is going to happen. Now, Charles, this is your first time watching it, and I've said this again and again, season six begins to really take a nosedive at certain points, but um, we're starting season five, and I want to see on this rewatch for myself and this first time for you, Charles, like what it's going to be like, how we're going to notice this uh, from, from what... At Steve Alley is saying like this gradual decline. Um, I'll it, read it. Oh, go ahead. It's such a weird sensation though because uh, everybody like collectively on the internet usually says that like season five and season six are much worse compared to seasons mm-hmm. one and okay. three. Yeah, and I've never seen season five or six, so like it has like this impression on me where like I'm you know implicit bias right now. Right. To be like, uh, is this actually bad or is it because I've been doctored to think this is bad? I'm not entirely too sure. Well, we kind of ran into this with in season four with uh, Mike Monroe, the bubble man. I remember hating his character, and I tried to approach uh, the show with uh, a new perspective, uh, just as if I were trying to watch it for the first time. And I actually kind of liked Mike Monroe a little more, but ultimately I think we decided that was kind of a, a strange character to add into the show. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm going to try to approach this season as openly as possible, but... 
it just feels like such an omen has been cast uh, over. <laughs> I want to read a couple more um, replies that we got to that Twitter post and the Facebook post. Um, some more positive ones uh, from at Pat G85. I felt the show was very good all six seasons. Still had most of the ensemble cast. It's miraculous the series worked at all. So yeah, I mean, they're still, they're still there. It, it still has something about it. That's Northern Exposure. Um, this is from at mad underscore picks. This is the beginning of the end. <laughs> so I mean, it, it goes on with more, but that, that's kind of like the summary of their reply. Um, at your sticking P1, I think that was your sticking pins in my doll. Uh, she says, he f***ed up the show. <laughs> referring to David Chase, slowly, and it didn't really kick in until season six, but he did ruin the show, I guess. So, you know, maybe it's going to be a gradual thing. I do remember liking season five a lot, so I think there's going to be some diamonds in the rough through this season, um, but, you know, we'll just have to kind of see as it goes. Uh, I'll, I'll read a couple from Facebook because we got a lot of responses from Facebook as well. Justin Bayless says, Five had some good episodes, but obviously not as good as previous seasons. Marcus Lusk says, four of my top 10 are in season five. So lots of great episodes, as I was saying earlier. I think we're still going to have some really nice moments going through these episodes. I'm nervous for season six, but we're just starting season five. So we'll focus on that for now. But I did want to talk more about David Chase and also Joshua Brand and John Falsey leave the series around this time. So obviously, you know, The Sopranos is a hit show. It was a big thing for TV, just as Northern Exposure was as well. But I'm sure David Chase has a lot of fans and um, a lot of haters maybe from Northern Exposure fandom. But yeah, I just wanted to know more about this man and more about like the history of what's going on with this series at the time. So I pulled up some articles that I was reading this morning. And uh, the first one I have here is from the Los Angeles Times. It's an article called Multiple Exposure. The cast of Northern Exposure faces a daunting prospect, living through dozens more episodes without the show's creators. And this was written at the end of season three, because it was around that time that Joshua Brand and John Falsey were deciding to leave the show. In the article, it says that they were regarded as some of the most in-demand, I guess, creators and writers in Hollywood. They, maybe that was partly why they decided to move on to other projects. It's kind of unclear exactly what happened with Joshua Brandon, John Fowlesy, why they might leave Northern Exposure. But I know we've talked about this before. Uh, there is always sort of a struggle between the creators and uh, the network because this is kind of a kooky show. But ultimately, Brandon Fowlesy were resigning as executive producers. They were deciding to resign like after... 13 episodes, it says in this article, uh, through season four. And just as that deal had finished, apparently uh, <laughs> there was another deal that was signed uh, with CBS to deliver 50 episodes of Northern Exposure over the next few years. So that would be throughout season four and season five. Um, so just as Brandon Falsey are deciding to leave, the show has picked up for more episodes. And they decide to continue through season four and I'm not exactly sure what happens, but obviously at the beginning of season five, I think is when they leave. Actually, they may have left earlier in season four. It's kind of unclear, but uh, they're still sort of attached uh, through season four. And by the time it gets to David Chase, uh, he had, I didn't actually know this. He was the showrunner on I'll Fly Away. Do you remember that series that 
Joshua Brand and John Falsey started, it was like after the first or second season of Northern Exposure, they started an, a whole other series called I'll Fly Away. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, and that show uh, also, I think, won some Golden Globes and things like that. It's really hard to track down. I've still never seen it. I think it's only two seasons. But Chase was the showrunner on that, or one of the showrunners, and he wrote, I want to say, like four or five episodes and also directed some episodes in that series. But it was sort of, let's see, this is from another article. Let me go, go ahead and just... Uh, give a little bibliography for this. This is from rogerebert.com. The article is called Magical Realism, Northern Exposure, 25 Years Later by Brian Doan. And it says, I'll Fly Away was sort of the sister series to Northern Exposure. Obviously, Northern Exposure was a lot more successful, more acclaimed. But let's see. There's a quote here in this article that quotes David Chase uh, talking about Northern Exposure. The people who worked on Northern Exposure thought they were curing cancer and reinventing drama. Uh, he took aim at Falsey and Brand's mission statement. Quote, the premise of the show, as I found out later, was that it was a, quote, non-judgmental universe. Huh? That's something I couldn't understand. To me, it was so precious, so self-congratulatory, I felt it was a fraud at its core. So obviously, he just wasn't in line with the same philosophy that Brandon Falsey had. And I think you even touched on this, Charles, when you were reading that Twitter post from, uh, let's see, at Steve Valley, the idea that uh, Chase hated the show for its lack of antagonism. And it just seemed like everyone in Northern Exposure is so supportive of each other, uh, which is something that we like and praise about the show. Something about that is not clicking with Chase. I, I just think maybe he didn't fully even fall in line with the idea of the show. And maybe that's why it is sort of falling apart, um, in, in, at least in the eyes of uh, the people who responded to our posts online about David Chase. Let's see, is there anything else I can say? Let's see, this article, uh, finally it says, David Chase later admitted that he did it for money. And it often shows these are spiky, uneven seasons which alternate whimsy and smugness, hope and nihilism in equal measure. That's really interesting, and I have two big thoughts on that. Number mm -hmm. one is that I find that when idiosyncratic uh, directors or showrunners are running a show and then they leave halfway through, the product almost always becomes much worse than what it was at the beginning. Obviously, the one I can think of off the top of my head is Dan Harmon with Community. He obviously has like a specific writing style and direction, and then he left at, you know, you know famously left. And then we can see like it took a nosedive on the show right there. But it doesn't necessarily mean that like you need a showrunner that is that possessive because Vince Gilligan, the showrunner mm. for Breaking Bad, mm -hmm. he is famous for like just creating the show and then just leaving, just leaving it up to the episode directors and for them to run it right there. So with Joshua Brand and John Falsey, who obviously were on the fifth season, we can obviously see that they are very distinct, unique individuals when it comes to their vision right there. I think they should have stuck around. Now, that's me coming from an area in which, like, I don't know what's going on in their lives. Maybe they needed to take a break. Maybe it was network interference. It could be a whole myriad of issues right here. But I think it's comfortable to say that, like, if they left, I don't care who replaces them. It's going to be an inferior product. And I think, yeah, I think it's, it's a large part that. And also, I... From what I'm reading, I do think that David Chase had his own agenda when he came to the show. Even if he said he did it for money, I think he might have wanted to try to change things up. Yeah. Which and could be good, but I don't know. Uh, Go ahead. Here's my thought on that, and this applies to like 
throughout all of medium, it doesn't matter which thing that you're looking at right here. Some things can be written in a very sentimental manner. Some mm. things can be written in a very dramatic manner. Some things can be whimsy. It's just the way that it's set up and designed right there. So if I'm watching like Sesame Street, you know <laughs> that like it's Sesame Street. We're not going to make this look like The Sopranos. Yeah. Like it has a distinct style. We're going to keep it the way it is. Even if you think that drama is better than whimsy, you have to look at what you're implying. You it's like your mission. What is your mission statement? Exactly. Yeah. You have to look at what you're applying it to. You cannot just think that like, oh, character development needs to have uh, friction between individuals yeah. in order yeah. to get what you want. That might be applicable to like 99% of uh, shows, but it it's not. it might not be applicable to the thing that you are running right now. Yeah. And I agree. I think that in the, I think in the terms of Northern Exposure, you don't need antagonism between the characters. I mean, what, what is that famous thing where it's like, it's it's either man versus man, man versus himself, man versus nature, man versus Mr. God. Machine and God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah right there. There's so many antagonisms. Yeah, yeah, you don't need to change it and shift it. You know, we don't have to shift a man versus man right here. As you're just saying, you don't have to pit the townsfolk against each other. Like, it doesn't have to be the characters fighting. They can be outside forces that they encounter solve together. Exactly. So I think this is a failure of communication between David Chase and what he wanted to achieve. And I think that the showrunners should have stuck around. But I, I, again, that's me being greedy yeah. and not realizing what they're going through at that period of their of their life. Yeah, there's, there's plenty more we could talk about that I was reading this morning just about Brandon Falsey and their relationship and what happened after they left Northern Exposure, maybe like as they were deciding to leave. That's probably something for maybe a Patreon or just a later episode because we're um, surmising a bunch of stuff about season five, about David Chase. And I just wanted to set the stage with that. That's, we're not, we, we, we can't make any judgments until we actually start watching. And we started with the first episode of season five today. This is an episode called Three Doctors. It was directed by Daniel Atias. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but he's been on the show before he directed the episode Revelations in season four, and he's going to continue directing throughout the series. Um, we're returning with the writers Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider, who I believe are also some showrunners, some producer types on the series. They've got plenty of great Northern Exposure episodes under their belt. Uh, Old Tree, Northern Lights, Sicily, Soulmates, the list goes on, just like the classics, the fan favorites of the series. And uh, let's see, the air date for this episode was September 20th, 1993, beginning a new season of Northern Exposure. And um, I guess we can comment on it. Some seasons, like, I want to say, is it season two? Like when we hop in, might be season three, but like, you know, clearly a seasonal change when it's like snowing. Uh, this one starts out, I don't know, what would you say? Is this kind of like springtime feeling? It's hard to say. I want to say springtime feeling. Like also... Oh yeah, I don't know if we said this before, but like we're we're looking at this with new eyes. Oh, you're right. We have just gotten the Blu-rays, so we're watching in 1080, no longer DVD quality. And also, what's great about uh, the Blu-rays is that they retain the original broadcast music, the music that was played on broadcast, whereas the DVD copies of Northern Exposure, I guess at least the ones that were uh, released through Universal what is it, like in season two, they started replacing uh, the music. Not all of it, but certain tracks are replaced on the DVDs for, I guess, licensing reasons. 
And uh, sometimes they do a good job. I think we've even, I've said before, Charles, that I might prefer the replacement to the original, <laughs> but I respect the idea that like, you know, someone's job was to put this music in the show. Like, even if you find a better replacement, that doesn't mean we should necessarily watch it that way. Though this is kind of how it's been available for the longest time, uh, just through DVDs. But we have the Blu-rays now. What do, what do you think, Charles? Yeah, I think that it makes the environment really pop. Like yeah. I, I wrote that down a lot. I was like, wow, this is actually really gorgeous right here. So with the Blu-rays, it looks like the sky is much more clear and blue. Um, the forestry is a lot more lush. So yeah, I think it's spring. Yeah. I, I want to say spring. Definitely spring, summer, it's sunny. And the f- opening shot that we get is like very pastoral, uh, very peaceful music happening very wide shots of like landscapes and you hear like birds chirping. Uh, I was listening to it on like my uh, monitors, like my speakers and a very nice sort of stereo effect of birds like in one ear and just the environment coming through sonically and visually beautiful. And uh, this opening soundbite that we played at the beginning of the podcast is this opening scene, uh, the sort of the opening gambit of the episode. Ed is... Uh, maybe it's not clear from the soundbite where we're talking about climbing trees, Charles. Ed wakes up on a tree limb, like in a tree. Yeah, he's in his pajamas. He's oh, yeah. Jimmy Pretty Jammies. sweet pajamas, too. I like that costume. I know. It's so <laughs> nice right there. Uh, it's perfectly framed between the branches. I'm really curious how they uh, how they got the camera up there. I wonder, let me let me, just, let me look at it right now, because mm-hmm. I almost wonder if this was actually up in a tree or if it was just That's like what a, I was a thinking. Staged, yeah, I was like, is a this a stage? Environment. Okay, we just rewatched the scene, and the camera tracks up the tree. Yeah. Like, there's no way this is a stage. <laughs> He's literally in the tree, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, <laughs> no stunt double either. I think that's actually... Uh, Darren Burroughs, Ed Chigliak. It looks like, you know, he's got a good grip on it. There's probably, I would assume, some sort of safety net below him, I would hope. But who knows? They're all the way up in Roslyn, Washington. They can probably do whatever they want without, without <laughs> interference. Like the, the rule of law doesn't apply once you had, like, past a certain latitude, longitude. Well, I feel like the nature of the show, at least in early seasons, like, all the producers are in L.A. and the crew is, like, up in Roslyn, Washington. They're just at summer camp. They can do whatever they want. We can do whatever you want. Let's just put the actors in whatever situation. (laughs) Perilous conditions. Uh, uh, You know, he's, I'm sure he was fine. Hopefully uh, did not fall out of that tree uh, because they finished the episode. Um, But yeah, he's surprised when he wakes up as he should be. He's like, where am I? Um, That's kind of all we get from the opening gambit. Just like Ed is waking up in a strange situation. And uh, that's when we cut into the title music with the moose And what happens uh, when we get back from titles? Oh, I will say, I noticed right off in the the opening titles, we have uh, credit for a guest star, Graham Greene, as Leonard. So Leonard is uh, returning this episode. What, what? (laughs) Yeah, uh, I think think everyone can agree Leonard's a pretty awesome character to have. He's sort of the shaman, the healer to Joel's, um, you know, medical degree, you know? They they have a, a nice back and forth whenever Leonard is in an episode. So right after the title credits, we see Joel um, just back at his office with Marilyn. We can see that he's in a little bit of an unusual situation. He's trying to get adjusted. There's obviously something wrong with him. And what I took note of in this scene is that Joel starts speaking in medical jargon a Mm. lot. It's very (laughs) common. One of the words that he uses is QID. What QID stands for is quarter and die. 
which basically means four times a day. Now, you can say four times a day, but Joel's choosing to say QID. He's yeah. choosing to say all of these words right here. I think that's going to play later in the episode. I'm going to touch upon that when we get to it. Yeah, he's, you know, we got to throw in a little bit of medical flavor because this is a show about a doctor in Alaska, but you're completely right. Like he could just say four times a day. There's a there's a reason why the writers are having him speak this way. Maybe just to reintroduce, it's like, hey, new season, if you're just tuning in, like this guy is a doctor. But, you know, this will come out more throughout the episode. We'll kind of uh, touch back in on that. Charles. But uh, in this scene, I think Joel is, he's like overheating. He seems to be maybe getting a little sick. And Marilyn is maybe trying to diagnose him for a sec. She's like, oh, is is it this? Like, what's exactly happening? Do you feel this? You know, she doesn't want to let on or she doesn't want to say what she's thinking. She's like kind of keeping it to herself. But I think uh, we can assume that Marilyn maybe knows what's going on with Joel, what what he's uh, coming down with, what illness but that's just sort of the beginning of Joel's storyline here. I guess if we want to go into our format of like splitting the episode into storylines, where should we start? We've already got Ed sleeping in a tree, Joel maybe getting sick, and um, there's some Shelly. stuff with Shelly that we'll see, but where would you like to start? Um, Let's start with Joel. Okay, yeah, let's continue with Joel here. Oh, wait, actually, what happens right after this, I just want to put it in here before we keep going down Joel. Uh, we see Chris giving his sort of like, I was going to say sermon, but like, you know, giving his uh, his monologue on K-Bear. Uh, Chris has a beard in this season, or at least in this opening of, he's got a huge beard now. Yeah, a lot of people have different aspects. Yeah, like Joel's hair seems a little shorter. Um, when we get to Maggie, she's got a, a kind of a different hairstyle. Ed kind of seems like he has longer hair too. I don't know. Kind of. It's hard to tell with Ed. Yeah. So if if we go by like the last episode that we saw, which was the season four finale that was released uh, sort of at the end of May in 1993, which means they could have shot it like in May or maybe even in April, uh, late April or something. I, I don't know when they shot it, but this episode again airing in late September of 93, there's been some months apart, some time for Chris to grow a beard, for hairstyles to change. So yeah, we'll, we'll be noticing some stuff. It's not, it's different when like we're watching mid-season, I think it was in season four, when Chris's hairstyle changes drastically from one, like it, I think they reordered the episodes because right. in one episode he has long hair, then it's short, then it's like long again in the next. So it's like, how, how does he grow that out? <laughs> um, but yeah, there's some changes here to appearance. Uh, just want to just want to say that about Chris. But to continue, Joel, we next see him in the brick, and he's um, obviously not feeling well. Hauling offers him some golf prawns, like some shrimp, some sort of shrimp dish. Yeah, it's with uh, scampi. Like shrimp Dave's cooking scampi. up. Yeah, right. cooking up some scampi right there. And Joel has like an aversion to it. He's like, definitely not <laughs> shrimp. I'm, I can't do that. And he's seated right next to Ruthann. And Ruthann asks him, is like, wait a second. Is there like a sensation in your nose? <laughs> Pins in your nose, which is right. what he said to Marilyn in the in the previous scene. Exactly. And uh, I, wanted, I wanted to make a joke about this, but I was like, Joel's like, he's patient zero. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, he does come down with an illness, uh, glacier dropsy, which is what they tell him about in this scene. But patient zero of... What are you saying, like a, like a COVID yeah. uh, symptom? <laughs> he got it in 1993, <laughs> and it was dormant till now. <laughs> it stayed up in Alaska. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. But um, 
I think it's very funny that, you know, Ruth Ann is like, wait, do you have, do you feel pins in your nose? And Holling's like, hold on, let me get this straight. You're saying that the thought of shrimp is distasteful to you? Like they're checking off all these things. It's very obvious that they have a clue to what is happening with Joel. And they tell him that uh, he's got glacier dropsy. They also name it tundra fever, Yukon ague. Um, and of course, Joel is like, no, there's no such thing as glacier dropsy. Uh, this is just the signs of a common flu. I think he says he's got influenza or something. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing where they give very folksy name to this disease. Mm-hmm. And then Joel replies back in a very scientific name right there. And he even says in the scene, he's like, no, 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 I'm like an internal medicine doctor. I know exactly what's going to happen right here. So yeah, once again, we're we're we're, we're seeing like, I feel like this is a plot line that's been done before, not explicitly with Glacier Dropsy, but with some sort of inexplicable thing that happens in Sicily and it's happening just to Joel because mm-hmm. he's new in town. <laughs> and I feel like we treaded this before, have we not? Like, Well, it- we do have the Russian flu in uh, season one, episode five or four. Uh, one of those episodes in the first season that doesn't happen to Joel, but it does happen to his visiting fiance at the time. There's um, the one with the uh, and then the sun the sickness. Sun? Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of what's that? Uh, midnight sun. But then there's there's like two episodes about the sun, or one of them's about the moon. So yeah, there's there's these uh, sort of seasonal changes. What is what's the other one? That's like the um, co-host. You know, like the environment. It's as if Joel is experiencing it for the first time. Though we know he's been here for. Actually, how long does he feel like a couple years at I least? I mean, quite, I mean yeah. <laughs> quite some time. Enough for him to have to like change his mailing address, like enough to there. And that this is where the plot line kind of bothers me in that we've already dealt with Joel trying to assimilate into Sicily, Alaska through some external uh, force, whether it's like disease or sun sickness, whatever right here. <laughs> and I think that's why it kind of bothered me to be retreading this same ground, especially Especially for the first episode for season five right here. Yeah, it doesn't feel very uh, new for the season premiere. I was thinking about that, like just the idea of season premieres. How do you do it? Like, I feel like there are certain aspects of this episode that maybe feel like they're designed to reintroduce the audience to the characters. Or if someone is tuning in for the first time, it's like, hey, this is our setup. These are our characters. Um, we've already got the idea that Joel is a doctor. You were, we were talking about like his doctor speech, um, though that might have another uh, uh, motive behind it in the writing, which we'll get to. But yeah, like what what makes a good premiere? We have to reinvite the cast back, maybe um, reset the status quo, like we talked about um, the season. Oh gosh, why am I forgetting? It's either season two or three that begins with just winter. You know, that's a new status quo for Sicily. But what is happening in this season premiere? Well, I mean, we haven't touched upon it, but I, I think it's like probably on Ed's plot, Ed's line, plot line. Okay. Which yeah. is like, that is a good writing strategy. I mean, okay, let me take it back. Okay. Not good. <laughs> it should be the writing strategy in my mind <laughs> is that you should you should set up the thesis statement for what this season should be about mm, immediately yeah. right there. So I think they're kind of doing it with Ed. We're going to touch upon that more once we get to it. But with Joel, it's not like evident what they're trying to do. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like this is necessarily the launching point for a ser- uh, a season arc, 
And again, Northern Exposure doesn't really have like season arcs, but there are certain things. Like in season four, Mike Monroe is sort of a big part of season four, though he's not there in the first episode and he's not there in the last episode. Um, he's just kind of in the middle. There, You could say there are season arcs, but uh, what is the word? Is it episodic? It kind mm-hmm. of has more of that vibe uh, to this show. But yeah, you're not you're not wrong. I think uh, a season beginning uh, should have some sort of um, create some sort of launching point for like where what are we saying? What is our mission statement for this season? But let's see. Joel's got glacier dropsy, even though he wants to deny it. Um, I think the next time, <laughs> the next time we see him is uh, he's leaving his office because he's got to do some sort of like CPR demonstration and sleep mute. And Maggie, well, hang on. Oh, go ahead. I think. Do you want to talk about the scene with Ed before that? Yeah, okay. kind of. Is yeah, that yeah. included with it? Yeah, let's talk about it. So okay. Ed, Ed goes to visit Joel. This is kind of Ed's plot line, but since Joel's in it, let's touch on it. Um, Ed goes to visit Joel because he's been sleepwalking or maybe sleep flying, is what Ed says. Um, there's a there's a sequence where we see like a dog barking um, to the sky, and we pan up uh, to see what the dog is looking at. And we see he's fixed on the roof of the brick, which uh, Ed is sleeping on. He's waking up in high places. Uh, he's woken up at the top of the brick, doesn't know how he's got there. Same pajamas, I think, actually. The cool mm-hmm, pajamas. Yep. Uh, so he goes to see Joel. And he's like, why, why is this happening? Right. And at the same time, Joel's suffering from glacier dropsy. So he's trying to diagnose Ed while trying to diagnose himself right here. Um, so this scene actually <laughs> has a really great sound bite. All right. See, sometimes the mind, for reasons we don't necessarily understand, just goes to the store for a quart of milk. What? Did I just say that? <laughs> yeah, that's actually one of my favorite quotes of the entire series. It's uh, it's very insightful, but also I like that Joel is also kind of confused by it. It's like, wait, it sounds very insightful, but it's like, what does that actually mean? Wait, what did I just say? <laughs> but it's that's um, that's oh, the glacier dropsy kicking in, because <laughs> it's 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 a simulating Joel into how the Sicily townsfolk uh, <laughs> look at life and you know talk about it. That's like such a Chris K Bear line right there. Mm, yeah, and even yeah. Joel is taken out of it. He's like, wait, what did I? Like, what <laughs> am I a Sicilian now? Is that what you're saying? Like, right, it's kind of right. Like so it's like coming in. It's it, it's starting. The disease is starting. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, manifesting through this weird Chrisism, or <laughs> I don't know. But what a great uh, what a great quote there. He loses track, but I think he eventually, um, he advises Ed to maybe seek some psychological treatment or psychiatric evaluation, he says. So Joel leaves Ed because he's got to uh, teach that CPR class or whatever in Sleep Mute. And as soon as he walks out of his office, he's greeted by Maggie. We see Maggie again for the first time in this uh, season. And like I said, a a hairstyle change, um, but it's kind of the same old... Uh, dynamic in a way because Maggie's like, oh, no, look, Joel, you really need to be in bed right now. Like, you've got glacier dropsy. Like, this is bad. And uh, Joel, arguing with her, hops into his truck. Um, though I do like this little button that they have. The the last line I think they have together is Joel says to Maggie, says, you know, that sweater looks great on you. So it's, you know, reminding you that there is a sort of a chemistry between the two. Um, maybe he's saying this through uh, his fever or, you know, this is just, it's nice to see that they're not like at each other's throats. They're still kind of squabbling, but from what has happened over the fourth season, 
maybe they've starting to move past uh, being enemies and we'll kind of see throughout this storyline. Uh, there's a lot more with Maggie and Joel, but at least at this point, I like that they sort of uh, add that little moment at the end of their interaction. Yeah, I also think it's a really neat backdrop whenever he leaves his office because his office is like, you know, it's like 1990s, very stuffy, old, kind of dusty. And when he steps outside, you can see the uh, wide, expansive blue sky and you can see the forest, the green forestry in the background right there. Um, that scene is actually repeated, like that same type of blocking. It's repeated later with Ed mm. and Leonard, but I'll bring it up whenever it gets there. Okay. Um, what I wanted to say was that I really like the blocking between joel and maggie when they're talking next to joel's truck mm -hmm. because it keeps flipping between the car windows right there mm -hmm. so they're framed within just that one window right there and just keeps flipping between the two and i think that's a really neat framing strategy right there but anyway uh <laughs> yeah once he uh, once he says bye to maggie we get like a wide shot of him driving the truck and like it, it, it Every, like we said, like comedy lives in the wide shot. It's so funny because his truck just like careens off the road, just like slams into trash cans. Yeah, just like clearly he's driving off the road. He doesn't know he's doing it. Like, it looks like he's almost about to run into a, uh, a telephone pole, though. I guess they need to keep that truck for later episodes. But it does kick up a lot of dust when he goes off road and Maggie's like screaming, uh, Fleischman and, you know, someone, uh, some extras like, Doc, are you okay? And they're running to the truck and we cut to commercial. Uh, when we get back, uh, I think it's like Maggie, Chris, and Maurice are carrying Joel into his like cabin. Right, and Joel keeps saying that he has Coxelli Bernetti. It's uh, what he thinks that like when, when a tick bites you, you get this disease right here. He thinks that the symptoms are lying up right there, and he keeps saying it to Chris, Maurice, and Maggie as they bring him back to his place, saying that like no, 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 it's this disease, it's this disease, and then they keep saying like no, 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 it's this. Um, glacier drops. Glacier dropsy, and then Joel says, "Like it's not like this, like folksy yeah. name right here." Yeah, he says something. I don't know if it's in this scene, but I liked what he said. It's like it's it's um, uh, surprising to find that, like in this corner of the world uh, in Alaska, that's all on its own. Like he somehow entered the dark ages. Like because we're talking about how Joel's approach here is very scientific by the books, and they're more. Folklore, I think is what you said. And maybe he says it in the episode. That's a good distinction that's happening uh, between his diagnosis and what they know by experience, I guess. Uh, Holling says he got it once. I think everyone gets it, they say. But once you get it, you won't get it again, which is nice. But um, later, I think uh, old Joe says, has anyone died from glacier dropsy? And Holling says, well, not in the last seven or eight years, but it's possible, <laughs> I guess. Um, but pertaining to this scene that we're in, uh, Joel begs them to call up a Dr. Neil Weisberg, one of his, I guess, buddies from New York, who's uh, also a specialist in infectious disease, or I don't know, a specialist who would know about what's happening. And they can't reach him at the time. Maybe he's like, it seems like he's a hot shot. I think Joel says he's probably playing golf or something right now. But the only other thing I have written about this scene is I really liked Joel's sort of like delirium setting in as they're putting him into his bed to lay him down. He kind of waves his hands and he says, Toro, 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 as if he's bullfighting, I guess. I'm not really sure why he made that choice, but I love it. Yeah, we can see that it's slowly dawning on him that like the disease is really taking root within him. And yeah, he's trying to look for Neil, who is like the top. Neil Weisberg, yeah. Is virologist? Virologist, maybe? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Someone who would know what's happening, maybe. 
Right. So now we skip forward to where Joel wakes up and we see Leonard next to him on the bedside. Yeah, I think is this the this first time we see Leonard in the episode, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, mean, I mentioned that you see his name in the credits, but uh, Joel wakes up with Leonard next to him. And uh, well, it's obvious that, or it's um, made clear that people are sort of taking shifts to watch Joel. And I think later, Chris might mention it on the radio, but I guess for Glacier Dropsy, the whole town uh, kicks up or joins together to help whoever's suffering. Um, so it's pretty nice to see them, you know, uh, what's the word, like switching out the post. And Leonard is reading some book. Um, I was really excited that we have Blu-rays because now I can kind of like see the titles on the book. But you can't really tell. I think it's just like a leather-bound book. I don't know what Leonard's reading. It probably doesn't matter. But uh, we'll be looking closely at fine print now that we have Blu-ray. But what happens in this scene? I think Leonard offers to dance for Joel. And Joel, yeah. Yo, go ahead. Yeah, he offers to dance for him as if that would be a cure. But I think the important thing is that Leonard is now taking over as the role of doctor for the town. That's true, yeah. Okay. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so like he has to leave his practice for a little bit because now their doctor is incapacitated. So like he has to come into Sicily, Alaska, and he's looking over Joel's patients as well. And Joel, you know, he still says like, well, I don't think that's a great ethical. You know, it's just, it's just crossing a lot of lines. I got to be there. But it, it looks like Leonard's holding the line. Yeah, Leonard is stepping in. Uh, I think, I feel like this... Uh, has happened before. It definitely probably has happened with Marilyn, where Marilyn like sees Joel's patients for him. And he's like, no, this is, yeah, you can't do that. There's some, there's a lot of, there's like legality, insurance, it's whatever. But uh, I guess we don't see, I don't think we see any scenes when, when Leonard is like treating other patients, but I guess it's happening. But let's see, what else? I think later, um, I don't know if it's the same scene, but Maggie comes back. This is a different scene. Different scene. Yeah, so Maggie uh, comes to watch over Fleischman. Uh, I wrote this down. I, it's probably not that important, but I like that she brought him flowers. And uh, Joel is saying like, oh, what is this? It's some sort of like homeopathic remedy. Uh, like the fragrance is going to help me. Uh, she says, no, Fleischman, they're just flowers. They look pretty. That's all. <laughs> um, yeah. Like and I tried to look into the flowers and what they oh, right. were. And even with Blu-rays, like my knowledge of it isn't like super great. So I was having to like tab a lot and be like, is it this flower right here? And there's three different types of flowers right here. Okay. So what I think the red ones are, I think they're lilacs. They're either lilacs or hyacinths. I can't really clearly see. But if they are lilacs, they represent renewal and confidence. And if they're hyacinths, they represent play or constancy right there. The white cluster of flowers right there, that I'm pretty sure is Bishop's Weed, which is also called Queen mm. Anne's Lace. Really neat name, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Any significance to that? Yeah, it's actually used as a treatment for skin disorders because it contains like a compound that can help the skin be more responsive to light therapy right there. Oh. So I think it's actually kind of interesting that she brings Bishop's Weed right there, a flower that is known for its medical properties. And... The very last one is, I think it's yellow evening primroses right there, which has two different meanings depending on which country you're in. Mm. So in uh, Japanese floral language, it means desperation, which would spell Mm, doom (laughs) right there. What Joel is feeling, perhaps. Right. But in Victorian flower language, they represent young, volatile love or a Ah. desperate, I cannot live without you. Oh, wow. Maybe commenting on the romance here. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting with the combination of these three flowers right there. Now, 
There's also a possibility that I'm looking way too deep into just these. Because, it, yeah, it's just, it's three different flowers. It'd yeah. be insane if they actually it's so knew, complex. Like, the yeah. yeah, it's a very complex meaning to have three separate ideas in one image. But, uh, you know, that's why we come to the flower shop. Welcome to the flower shop. No. We want to know, like, what the flower language is here. Maybe there is some reasoning for why the production designer, the set dresser, whoever put that together. And I think... Um, Maybe not always, but I think at least sometimes I think it's quite intentional, as we've seen that you've pointed out to us, Charles, in some of the past episodes with the choices of what flowers they use. Yeah, I think with uh, Maurice and his childhood home that he oh, has yeah. bring with him, the, that choice of flowers was like super evident in my yeah. opinion. What was the... Um, because they they mention they, it's textually right. They say it verbally. It's like these. My mother used to plant. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, marigolds was it? I can't marigolds. Remember. Yeah. So they were like it has like a it's clear written meaning. In. It's written into the script, so it's right. obvious that they chose that particular flower. And the meaning did um, pertain. Uh, what episode was that? That was uh, an episode called Homesick, season four, episode twenty. So you can check out that episode and uh, listen to our analysis if you like. Um, but okay, so they're just flowers, Fleischman. They look pretty. That um, I pulled a soundbite from this scene because this is when Joel unloads on Maggie. Uh, he requests some aspirin. She's very reluctant to give it to him because apparently Holling maybe or someone in town, maybe Maurice. Maurice. Uh, yeah, they asked for, they took some aspirin when they had glacier dropsy and uh, it, made their tongue swell. Uh, I guess that could cause you to choke and die. It just, to, to Maggie's experience, it's not smart to um, use aspirin, but Joel's medical knowledge says, no, aspirin could never have that effect. But whatever, he's upset about it. Uh, here's, here's what he says to her. Look, Anna, you know, I always knew that you were stubborn and malicious and petty. I, I just didn't realize until this minute how profoundly stupid you are. I think that's the whole enchilada. That's, that's what it's all about. The whole cornerstone of your personality, the rock on which your house is built. This is just the fever talking. No, this is not the fever talking. I am lucid and I am rational. I know exactly what I'm saying. You're an adult. You understand. You're a complete moron. You're a pathetic cretin. You're an idiot. I think it's pretty funny, um, though it is quite biting. It's very mean, but uh, it's always funny to see them bicker at each other. And in this situation... Joel gets a pass because Maggie's like, okay, you're just sick. You're, you, this is the fever talking. And he has to underline it and say, no, I mean this 100% full hearted. Um, and we'll see the repercussions for this later, but quite a powerful uh, diatribe from, from Joel there. Right. And the next time that we see Joel, we see like uh, different members of the town taking care of him. We see Maurice. We see Holling. Holling offers to bring him kvass. Oh, yeah. Some like Russian. I looked that up. It's like a Russian drink, I think, made from like fermented, I don't know, like bread or yeah. raisins or something. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. <laughs> it's made from like rye bread. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> I've never had it, but uh, maybe it's a good thing to have when you're sick, at least with Glacier Dropsy. Right. And this leads to... I, I oh, want to say yeah. this is the first dream sequence of this uh, season. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Joel is hallucinating uh, that his buddy Neil—I uh, wrote down what's the guy's last name—Neil Weisberg uh, is just walking straight into the bedroom now. And uh, let's describe—I I wrote down sort of a description for Neil. Uh, he's got a very '90s like guppy fashion, but it's sort of athletic wear. He's wearing like spandex leggings. He's walking in with like a road bike. Uh, he's got his windbreaker, very 90s colors. And like 
the windbreaker is like open, so his chest hair is like poking out. So he just seems like a hot shot, like playboy doctor who Joel describes as like uh, playing golf on his during his like office hours or whatever. But yeah, this hallucination is basically Joel begging Neil to like help him in this situation, give him the diagnosis he wants. And Neil is sort of uh, just kind of like spouting the the same sort of things that Joel was spouting in the beginning of the episode, the QID, the uh, just this sort of like uh, writing it off quickly, I guess. Right. So now the tables are turned where Joel <laughs> is dismissive of the townsfolk. So is Neil with Joel. Mm-hmm. And because Joel's telling him, it's, it's not that termite. I mean, it's not that tick disease. I, I've, you know, I've already written it off and all these things. But Neil will say, it's like, no, just QID for like this amount of medicine. You'll be fine, man. And so, yeah, I, th- I th- actually think it's a pretty good dream sequence. Yeah, I guess it's it's here. It's showing like um, it feels like a lack of compassion from from Neil in this hallucination, this dream sequence, and it could reflect on you know Joel in that first scene when we see him uh, sort of using the same language to his own patient, like sort of a lack of compassion. And uh, maybe I'm not discrediting Joel's uh, expertise, and he was probably accurately. Um, diagnosing or prescribing the patient in that first scene. He was probably right about it, but it did feel like a pretty, what's the word, um, clinical, um, just just like uh, devoid of empathy, you know? Uh, he wasn't really connecting to his patient. And I think that's, a, a, especially in episodes when Leonard is featured, you know, there's that dynamic of how a doctor and a patient should have a relationship. And it's more than just, numbers and textbooks. It's about connecting to your patient, I guess. Right, exactly. And that brings us to the second <laughs> dream sequence oh, yeah. that is like disturbing. <laughs> did you Nightmare think it was sequence. Yeah, did you think it was disturbing? <laughs> uh well it is very harsh because there is um the 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 visual of it is uh, I want to say it's kind of a wider angle lens closer to Joel's face. So there's distortion, a close-up on Joel's face. He's sweating, like the fever is breaking maybe. And there's a harsh, hard light on his face uh, because when we get the reverse shot, it's as if he's like on an examination table. So he's like in a hospital. And what is it? Maurice, Ruthann, and Holling? Or is it just... Uh, Marilyn is there. There, It's Maurice, Marilyn, and Ruthann. They're all dressed in like uh, scrubs and uh, they're staring over him. And when we see Joel, he's just sweating and screaming and this light is shining brightly on his face. Is that what you mean by disturbing? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, also the content. Because what's happening in this scene is that Joel is delivering... Uh, a baby yeah. right now. I love, I wrote down, I love how he's like, no, th- there's been a mistake. I'm a man. I can't have a baby. <laughs> it's like, obviously this is a nightmare. There is an SNL sketch that actually deals exactly with this <laughs> where it was like, oh, like now the man can get pregnant. And the man's like, you know, he's like happy to help out his wife to be like, I'll, I'll take on the burden. But uh, where does the baby come from? <laughs> like, where does it come out? Yeah, where does it come out? And they're like, oh, it comes out of this area. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think the reason why Joel is having this nightmare is because earlier when Ruthann is, uh, when, when they, they're at the brick and it's Ruthann and Hauling and they diagnose him with glacier dropsy, she says, you know, nothing else compares to the pain um, except childbirth. Right, right, good catch. So, and Ruthann is in this dream sequence. So, you know, Joel is probably experiencing um, incredible pain in his sickness and it spurns on this uh, this nightmare of him giving birth 
to a child. It's goofy, but it's also, yeah, it's kind of frightening just the way it's photographed. It's right. creepy. And it's scary. I think it's got, I mean, okay, so mission statement time. If we overanalyze <laughs> the scene, I think it's like obviously a baby is continuing the cycle of life. Oh, okay. So continuing. Yeah. So it's like Joel's rebirth into Sicily. Now, why is he being reborn five seasons in? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, at this point, I think, as you mentioned, like it feels like a retread because this happens a lot where he kind of re-identifies himself uh, in the context of this small town of Sicily. So we're not saying that you can't do that more than once. It's, you know, that's kind of a typical formula for an episode maybe. And it's happening again uh, here in this season premiere. Um, Well, let's keep going. So the next time we see Joel is uh, that scene I mentioned when uh, Joel asks Holling, has anyone ever died from Glacier Dropsy? Holling tells him, well, not in the past seven or eight years, but there's a chance. So Joel says, okay, do whatever you want to do. What is it? Like the sulfur wrap, the salmon berry tea, like whatever you got to give me, just do it. I don't want to die from this. <laughs> and uh, go go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to say like, this is the moment where, you know, he transitions okay, to, the, yeah. to the next side. Yeah. This is his, him breaking and, and uh, uh, accepting or, or changing, I guess, in this story arc. And the next time we see him, he's uh, well, I think actually first we see like uh, Ruthann and uh, some other people in his kitchen. They're like cleaning up and doing like preparing food and stuff for him. And Marilyn is there and she goes to walk into the bedroom. And Joel still bedridden, but he looks a lot better, you know, um, comparatively. And she gives him a look. Marilyn gives uh, Joel a look and she can somehow sense that he's better. She just uh, flat out says, it's time to get up. And uh, at least I'm glad that they at least talk it through because um, I don't think that Mar- Marilyn comes off a little bossy at first. She's like, get up now. But they talk it out and uh, she says, well, you saw it. Didn't you see it? The glacier. And Joel's like, oh, yeah, you know, actually I had like a dream of like some ice or something like that. And she says, that's that's like the cue, I guess. You're 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 ready to get up. And He's reluctant, but she says, you'll feel better. And so there's a little compassion there. Right. And I think that if we continue the metaphor of what I was laying down earlier, it's like he describes the place as like a pure white area. Yes. So mm-hmm. it's like you're starting anew when you know clean, you have clean white, slate right sterile. there. Okay. So once he wakes up, he's like, okay, well, I'm at the train station. I'm ready to depart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's a good uh, metaphor. The, just the color of, of white is a good metaphor for Renewal, rebirth. And that's sort of, we've talked about that. It's like, that's the climax, the overcoming this um, sickness and sort of changing to a new Joel. But there's still another scene um, with Joel and it's Maggie. I think she comes, is it Maggie comes to his place? Let's see. And yeah, so she's coming to see him and he wants to apologize to her. He says, if memory serves, I said some pretty rough stuff to you. And Maggie writes it off. She says, no, you didn't. And uh, Joel has to be like, no, I was actually lucid. Like I meant what I, you know, when I said that, I meant it. And that it was just uh, a mean thing for me to do. Right. And Maggie still forgives him for it right there. And I think it's really interesting that like I had said in the beginning that he was using a lot of medical jargon, very harsh, cold, sterile language. Now he's using language that's much more warm and compassionate when he apologizes yeah. to Maggie. So we're seeing this turnaround in the way that language is being applied right here. And we can see that like, well, the thesis statement for Joel's plot is that like you, you need to connect with them rather than just like spouting off 
terminology. Yeah. There's more of a compassion, as you said. There's more uh, feeling between the two. I think uh, Joel takes her hand, you know, in this scene. I like, I wrote down what uh, Maggie responds. Uh, basically, she says, like, I forgot it. You know, like, it's okay. You don't have to apologize. I just already forgot it. She says, I didn't want to be hurt, and I'm tired of being mad at you. It seems that's all we ever do. And there are moments in season four that uh, this reminds me of, the idea that they're recognizing this pattern in their relationship where uh, they just keep they just keep going into this cycle. Um, I think it's particularly when um, Mike Monroe comes in and when Mike Monroe leaves and there's um, a really amazing deleted scene in uh, The Big Feast where um, they sort of, uh, I think it was Maggie um, who says, could you just pretend to be mad at me? Like that's, that's just so much easier. Flashman, would you do me a favor? Sure. Could you still be mad at me? <laughs> you want me to still be mad at you? Yeah, yeah. You can just act if you want to. What? Why? Well, because it makes things easier for me. Well, what? It, what, what do you mean, things? You know, you, me, it, this. It's just a, it's a party tonight, you know. And I wanted to have fun, so if you could just pretend. If you can't get the real thing, you, you can just pretend. And, and then by the end of that season, uh, they realize that you know it's it's sort of a it's a facade. Like, why do we do this? I'm tired of doing that. So um, we're doubling down on, I want to say, sort of their agreement that they make in, is it in Old Tree? Yeah, yeah. It's in Old Tree, the season finale of season four, where they agree to uh, just start fresh. Right. So they're breaking the cycle right here. So they're trapped in this like, you know, we hate each other. We're like, we're just going to turn each other's words. And Maggie decides to be like, I'm going to take the first step to not continue this cycle of uh, just spatting. I'm, I'm going to break it by forgiving. Yeah. And we double down here now in this episode. Uh, so that is maybe a launching off point for this series uh, season arc, I guess. But yeah, it's, an, it's a very quiet, heartfelt moment because we cut out to the wide shot or like a two shot where Maggie and Joel are looking at each other at the end of this conversation. I think Joel is still holding her hand. And the camera lingers for a while, and we begin to see Joel uh, slowly smirk. It kind of begins to smirk in his face, and the camera cuts. I almost wonder if that was just like him cutting up on set, um, or if that was just uh, part of Joel, the character, in that moment, smiling to share this heartfelt moment with Maggie. Either way, I think it works very powerfully for this for the end of this scene. Okay, let's get back to the next plot line. And I think we should go with Shelly and yeah. Hauling and the baby. That one's pretty short, um, but I love it because if you remember in the last episode we watched, the finale of season four, Old Tree, Shelly has inexplicably been singing. She can't talk. She can only sing. Uh, so it sort of has this musical feel to that episode, uh, as in like a, a musical, like a movie that is a musical. It's such an interesting choice for the entire episode. This character can only sing. And when she returns in this season, it hasn't changed. She's still singing. Um, there's obviously some difficulty between Shelley and Holling in that um, season four finale, though they come together stronger. And it's nice to see uh, I think in the beginning of this episode, one of the patrons is like, why is she doing that? And Holling says, oh, you don't, you don't know this? Like, have you been, are you not from around here? Like, 
she's still singing, you know, she's been that way for months. And I like that he says, it's nice, isn't it? Because <laughs> Holling at first was worried. Uh, right. But, you know, it's kind of cool that they, they're reminding you that it's like, uh, if, if, at least if you're an audience member who was watching the show at the end of the fourth season, it's a, a nice callback to that struggle they had and that um, re-strengthening that they got by the end of that episode Yeah, as a couple. Character development. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm pretty sure I touched upon this when we were talking about that episode. But in the musical, whenever an individual sings, it's because they the cheesy answer is that they can't <laughs> contain their feelings within. It's a drastic change. So they have to put it to song. So in Shelly's case, it's because of the baby. So mm-hmm. she's having such a life-changing moment that she has to sing throughout it right there. And we can kind of see where the conflict with her comes whenever they're celebrating Lowell's 55th birthday and they have to get him a cake and they say like, well, Shelly, you've been singing this whole time. Why don't you do the honors? Why sing, don't you sing happy birthday? Right, right. And she can't. Yeah, she starts to sing and it's uh, off. Like her singing hasn't been like pitch. Well, I was gonna say her singing hasn't been like amazing, uh, but you know, she has a very interesting sort of like bluesy, I don't know what you would call it, um, style to her melodies. But it's obvious right now. It's like not, it's obvious now that her singing is off. Uh, it's just not making any sort of melody. It's just, it's just very hard to listen to. And uh, she retreats uh, almost kind of ashamed. I actually kind of like the camera movement. Like she kind of retreats, runs away from the table where Lowell is sitting with the birthday cake. And she like runs over to the bar and the camera swings really fast. It kind of like dollies in with her, I guess effectively to just like separate her from the party happening at the table. Uh, Hauling rushes over to her as well. Yeah, it's like we can we can see clearly now as she starts saying like, I don't know what, what's the problem. Like, I'm really good at singing. What's happening? And uh, Hauling points out, well, you're talking right now. You're not singing anymore. And that's sort of the new uh, conflict, I guess, brought in. I guess they had to, they couldn't, I don't know. I wonder how long they could have kept her singing throughout the season. <laughs> I'm glad that they cut it off. I'm glad, but I'm glad that they kept it through. Like it, it lasts from the last season into this one. Yeah, yeah. it was a two-episode <laughs> yeah. uh, arc yeah. that it did. It, I, I agree with you. I think that's actually really nice that they ended with it in the beginning with it, but they're having like a, like a resolution to it right here. Yeah. It spans two seasons in a way, though it is only two episodes of an arc, but yeah. <laughs> so where we next see Shelly is that she's coming to visit Ed, and we're going to get to why Ed is in this situation, <laughs> but Ed at the moment has his hand Buried in the dirt? Yeah, literally like an ostrich situation <laughs> where like he just gets stuck right there. So she's bringing him some food because he's stuck in the dirt. Uh, right. We'll and, okay, so I'm pretty sure I've talked about this probably in season one, okay. maybe season two, but I like the pairing of Shelly and Ed because yeah. they're the youngsters of the town and right. they're not often paired together. And when they are together, I, I think there's like a youthfulness to their dialogue and like, I, I don't know if it's like intentional, if the screenwriters were that talented or if the actors are ad-libbing, but it no longer shares like the dialogue that they have with the adults of the series. Yeah, I think sometimes uh, Shelley's character is overwritten to sound younger, you know, and it, 
I'm not going to uh, say that she's not written that way in this scene. She's using some lingo that the youngsters might use. It seems a bit like older people are trying to sound younger. So maybe that's more obvious whenever Shelley shares a scene with an older person like Halling. But I think you might be onto something. Like when she is in a scene with Ed, it seems more natural. And it could be just because the actors maybe have a good chemistry. They are also younger and they're playing younger characters together. So they don't have to... I feel like maybe could also be in the writing that they don't have to make the gap age gap so obvious. Uh, maybe they're trying to intentionally make the age gap obvious in scenes when Shelley is with an older person, but in this scene, it can just be, you know, they don't have to like try extra hard. Yeah. And I like the topic they talk about amongst themselves because this is the moment where they're both feeling very vulnerable, but they're feeling vulnerable because of the changes in life of like what happens whenever you step into the precipice into adulthood, which both of them are going through right here, this doesn't apply to the other townsfolk because they've already crossed it. But with these two, they're standing at the entrance to the universe and they don't quite know what step to take. So it's really refreshing to see them both confide in each other and Shelly saying like, I don't know what to do. I've suddenly had like a change in my life where I'm no longer singing. And Ed, though he doesn't confide in her explicitly, we know that he's also going through the conflict of saying like, I don't know what direction my life is taking me now. And it's frightening. And these, these two individuals are lost in like the wave to adulthood. Yeah. And you know, Shelly with her singing, but also like what that is a metaphor for is like, she's a, a new mother. Uh, she's going to be a new mother. And Ed also, which we'll get into his potential new direction in life. I didn't think about that scene that, that aspect of this scene. But yeah, maybe that is why it's such a strong scene as well, because they're both, uh, they can both relate so strongly together. Right. And it ends in a very, in a similar manner in that Ed is just inexperienced. He's too young to be able to solve another individual's problem uh, concisely. He can't help Shelly on what she's going through right here. One, because he hasn't been a healer for very long. And two, because he just hasn't like experienced a lot of life yet. And I think it's fitting that he can't answer her questions. I think it's good that he can't. I, I would have walked away disappointed yeah, if, if he Ed, had, the, yeah, if he had some out. insight yeah. into like how or like why if he was just like, oh, it's because like you no longer need to hold on to that like string. Like, you know, you don't have to rely on the baby. Um, thankfully that comes later in the next scene. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think, uh, I, I don't remember where I heard this, but, um, uh, someone, I think it was, oh God, I think it was like a, a, an interview with Andre Tarkovsky where he says like, if you want to see, if you want to build a character and show, um, some sort of growth or change, they should falter first. And like, obviously like Ed doesn't have the solution. So we want to see them maybe fail first. I think in the example that Tarkovsky used uh, when he said falter, like literally his character, there's a scene where like the character is just walking and he trips. And I, remember, <laughs> I, was, I was watching like a DVD commentary of like some scholar who was talking about, it's like, and they're like, yeah, uh, the reasoning, but I don't know if it's true, but was, they were like, the reasoning behind this scene is because you can go back to this interview with Tarkovsky when he says like, someone no, must I, falter. I but, totally buy that. Yeah. I, I 100% wholesale buy that. Yeah. That is sub, that's visual subtext yeah. being played. And I, you might argue and be like, that's like way too obvious or something. But like, yeah. I think it fits. Yeah. I love it. It's I love it when directors, direct, yeah. yeah, they take a very direct approach 
in order to communicate what they want in their subtext. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, in my opinion. <laughs> right. Well, maybe that's going. What's going on here? You know, like, or exactly what you're saying. What's going on here? Uh, Ed Ed falters or he fails before he can succeed. Uh, but what were you saying? What is the next time we see Shelly? So the next scene is Shelly singing off tune. She's trying to recapture that magic while she's taking out the trash. And Leonard is walking past and he's um, he's seeing this happen. You know, when you just said that, taking out the trash, I've kind of forgot about that element in this scene. But um, I guess there's something to be said about like that action that's not verbally spoken, but that we see like she's taking out the trash, what could that represent? Oh, I, I think it means like starting a new. Yeah, I she's kind of like that. trying to start a new slate or she's getting rid of baggage maybe that she oh, had. Oh yeah, that's a good one. That's yeah, because yeah, what we learn in this scene, uh, she bumps into Leonard and he says, uh, you know, it's clear you're not, you know, you can see you're not singing anymore. He says to her, well, whether you know it or not, you're clearly very happy because you're no longer worried about the baby. And he relates the idea that this singing uh, is a manifestation of what he calls the fears. He says it's like whistling past the graveyard, a way to quiet your fears. So now that she doesn't have to quiet those fears um, or that she's not singing anymore means that she doesn't have to quiet those fears. So somehow subconsciously she's come to terms with or um, she's felt um, confident enough that uh, she doesn't have to worry about what's going to happen with the baby. Right. What I think is really interesting about this, though, is that I don't I don't know if this is the first time it's happened in Northern Exposure, but it's enough for me to at least immediately recognize this, is that the subconscious is now taking over the conscious in mm, that mm-hmm. it wasn't her conscious decision to stop singing. It right. was her body's choice to recognize that, like, we don't have to hang on to this coping mechanism. We can go ahead and let loose. We can let go of it. I don't think either way is the right way, the quote-unquote right way, but I think that that is a way of a character developing, having them subconsciously develop right there. Whereas I think another way they could have wrote it was saying that like Shelly realized that herself and then stopped sinking. But I think in this case, I don't think it's out of flavor, out of tune of Northern Exposure to go delve into this type of... uh, Subconscious. Yeah, um, this type of change. Solution, yeah, change. Yeah, no, I really like that. And I like that explanation that Leonard gives um, for why that was like a symptom of something and and she's much better now. And, you know, it's, I I don't know why, but I really like um, the the next scene with Shelly and Holling. I think it's sort of the conclusion of Shelly's storyline here. She is installing like child locks on the cabinets and uh, one of those like little plug guards for outlets on the wall. So I think she says, so like the little pooper can't like stick their fork into the socket and electrocute the Yeah. <laughs> but I loved the, um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but I think it really works here. The, uh, the love between uh, Shelly and Holling and the affirmation Shelly says in this scene, she says, everything's going to be fine. Really, everything's going to be fine. And I like... I don't know. It's not the like. It's not like uh, jaw dropping acting, but it just really felt real, like a real connection between the characters, the actors. Um, it's a heartfelt scene. Maybe that's why it got me because uh, immediately after she says that, she feels the baby kick. That's just a sign to say. Uh, well, I like. She also says, ten fingers, ten toes. Like it's gonna be. Everything's gonna be fine." And we see that with the baby kicking. Yeah, I think it's a lovely way to end their plotline. And uh, I'll be honest, man, 
I totally forgot she was pregnant. Because <laughs> well, did yeah. that did it start? I'm trying to remember when she. I wonder if it was. Um, no, no, no. I don't think that uh, that started in the season finale. It was before that. So I think it starts in. So actually, I don't know which episode when she figures out that she's pregnant. But just from looking through some notes real fast, I know that she's pregnant in Mud and Blood. That it's uh, the 23rd episode in season four. So it's like the the third to last, I guess. So I don't know if it's before that or if that's the episode. So yeah, she is pregnant for a while and then she starts singing um, after, you know, a couple episodes after that at least. So yeah, maybe it's just like the fear is manifesting. Why were we uh, <laughs> trying to, I just were just trying to remember wh- how long she's been pregnant. Cause I, I we was, forgot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I cause we, we've taken a short break. <laughs> Yeah. So I had totally forgot that it's actually like, because I just keep thinking it's like a sitcom and it like reverts back to the status quo. Right. But right. like, yeah, I totally <laughs> forgot about this. It's been the status quo for a while, apparently. Yeah, she's been pregnant for a few episodes. And that brings us to the final plot line, Ed and shamanism. Yes. Okay. So we were talking about him waking up in high places. How does this translate to shamanism, to um, this new calling in his life? Well, he goes to see Chris. Uh, to ask about, you know, what, why am I waking up in strange places? Or he says, you know, has this ever happened to you? And what does Chris say to him? Well, he asks Ed, you know, have you had any injuries to your head? Have you had a lot to drink? Like that usually makes you forget uh, <laughs> where you, like, you don't know why you're waking up in this place. Um, Ed doesn't drink. Ed hasn't suffered any trauma to his head. Um, but I like that Chris says, uh, well, he poses this question. Why do people usually forget things in the first place? Because they don't want to remember. He says this is trauma. The mind sloughs off all this nasty baggage. It happens all the time. So I guess Chris's perspective is Ed is forgetting this for some subconscious reason, maybe? Yeah, I think he's, he's uh, insinuating that you can subconsciously say that you can pick and choose which memories you want. Which, okay, I, I was talking about this yesterday with a friend in a tangentially related topic. Uh, I don't believe that. The reason why <laughs> is because, so a little uh, background, I don't watch horror movies at <laughs> all. Like I, I respect it, but I, I absolutely will not watch it. And the reason why is because I still remember Jeepers Creepers, like pivotal <laughs> scenes from Jeepers Creepers when I watched it when I was like eight. And it still stuck with me. And I want to forget those things, but I can't. You cannot consciously nor subconsciously <laughs> yeah. shake it from you. Yeah. And like, instead of remembering like a test answer on a final or something, I'm remembering like Jeepers Creepers. I'm like, no. Like, <laughs> like if you could consciously forget it, you would. And then, um, you, you know, if your subconscious wanted to forget it, uh, wanted not to remember it, which... Yeah, if it's causing you trauma, you don't want to remember right, it. It's exactly. still happening, like, though. Yeah, I consciously don't want to remember it and subconsciously don't, don't want to remember it. it. And yet, like, your still body's still, you. yeah, it's still retaining it. So that's why I don't believe in Chris saying, like, yeah, yeah. no, you can, like, you can forget about, you know, whatever you want. I also, I kind of forgot about this scene because I don't think it has any bearing because it's not, I don't think Chris is right, right? Because we learn the reason. Later. Right, right, right. Um, but go ahead. Were you going to say something? Oh yeah. Uh, this actually, um, when Chris was talking about like, oh, were you like drinking a lot? You're just forgetting. Uh-huh. Uh, that reminds me of a, a Mulaney bit that he did on his first album called the top part. And, um, how it goes is that he says, I used to do blackout drinking every night of the week. That's absolutely true. I used to do this every night. For those of you who don't know what that is, blacking out is when you drink so much 
that your brain goes to sleep, but your body gets all eye of the tiger and soldiers on. <laughs> I used to do this every night of the week. I'm not proud of that fact, by the way. I'm not proud that I blacked out every night. I'm not proud that I saw the movie The Notebook in the theater, <laughs> but it happened. I can't change the past. It was a matinee, too. <laughs> but I'll tell you about blacking out. It was always weird when I'd go out for the night with like some money and then black out and wake up with no money. It was even weirder though when I went out for the night with some money, black out, and woke up with more money. Because that means that I earned money. That means that I traded goods and or services, which is scary. <laughs> Yeah, the power of, um, I guess, blacking out alcohol and not remembering when you wake up, uh, which, as we said, Ed doesn't drink. And I think Chris is, uh, as you're saying, Charles, you might agree, way off the mark here because uh, <laughs> Ed isn't choosing to forget either consciously or, sub or subconsciously. There's obviously something else happening that Chris has no expertise for. You know, like Ed goes to Chris for his own expertise, though it doesn't apply to Ed here. And he goes to Joel for his expertise. And again, it doesn't apply here. What is happening is something that Leonard can help him with. So Ed is walking about and um, he he's act, acting a bit funny. And I think Leonard picks up on it. They're just like walking outside and they see each other. And Ed says to Leonard, oh, I better keep walking or I might fall asleep. So he's like, obviously trying to stay <laughs> awake. I think he's like uh, swinging his arm about, yawning. You know, he's trying to like shake himself awake. <laughs> Poor guy has been walking just to stay awake. I don't know how long he's been walking for. Um, but Leonard can sense something uh, that is happening with Ed, and he doesn't want to jump to conclusions, he says. But um, what do we find out? I guess it's not in this scene, but it's later, right? Yeah, it's later in the scene that we truly find out what's happening. Okay. But what I thought was really interesting about this scene is the blocking mm -hmm. of it. Because oh, instead right. of... How how it starts off is that Leonard's sitting on a bench eating a cheese Danish, and he invites oh, yeah. Ed like, to sit down with them. Yeah, some Danish. And instead, Ed's like, "No, I'm fine." So <laughs> they walking. get up and they walk, which makes the scene more dynamic because the camera's moving with them. Right, right. right. The camera's moving exactly with them. It's tracking with them. Um, so you're just seeing like the background go along with them, and I think I'm just. I like it whenever the episode director decides to put in like just much more movement into mm -hmm. scenes rather than just shooting everything in profile and just having like, oh, here's like a shot of his face, his shot of this person's face, and we just, you know, mirror each other like that. Yeah. I think it's good that they decided to, even though it was only for like, I don't know, like two minutes, it yeah. still made the scene come alive. Yeah, it gives it, like you said, some uh, dynamism. It makes it more dynamic. Uh, gives it some movement. Obviously, Ed is trying to move to stay awake, so there's some of that we can see happening. But yeah, it's just uh, a lot more energy uh, so it doesn't feel flat all the time. But what is uh, what happens now? I think Leonard takes Ed to um, what we talked about earlier, uh, bury Ed's hand in the ground, I think. Yeah. And this is where, <laughs> uh, like we talked about before, this is where like the Blu-ray kicks in because they're right next to this lake. <laughs> oh, so pretty. Yeah. And it's so pretty. And it, uh, there's the forest in the background. And what's really cool is that there's like this um, white shroud white mist that's above them that oh, yeah. adds to the mysticalism. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and Leonard is explaining to Ed that he could have been called. Yeah, he says something like what what Ed is displaying, uh, the this waking up in high places and, and mysterious spots, this symptom indicates 
a person who straddles the physical world and its metaphysical counterpart. So someone who is in between reality and uh, a spiritual realm, perhaps. And he says, this could mean that you've been called to be a shaman, a healer, where this differs from like Joel as a doctor, a healer, a shaman is someone who uh, has a sense of the physical world and um, ailments to a person's physical body, but maybe seeks some sort of spiritual treatment to cure their patient. I think that if they actually have the, um, they, they actually go through like the full ordeal of medical school, but they also have to learn yeah. about this other practice. That's such a hard job. Well, it is. I think that might actually be what it is because by the end of the episode, Leonard is like, you know, it's tough being a healer. You have to study a lot. So he does suggest that you do have to learn. You have to go to school. You can't just like be in tune with the spirit world. You do but have it, to. Study. It's implied that it's medical school. Yeah. So it's like you go. To medical school and then you go to shaman school you go to both well the first time we meet leonard in like season three i think wake up call i want to say because it's one of my favorite episodes but he's there because he wants to like i don't know if you say apprentice but like shadow under joel because he has leonard has his own perspective on medicine and he wants to see what oh, that's medicine true. is like to the big city doctor but I don't know. There's still like by the end of this episode, Leonard suggests that there is a lot of study involved. So it might right, be medical. But, like, but you wouldn't shadow under a doctor right. if you are like you fully pr- like practice. Like you have the MD by yeah. your name. Yeah. So he must go to like some uh, halfway point school or something like yeah. that. It's not true. Like he didn't go to John Hopkins. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he has to have. Again, like it's someone who straddles the physical and metaphysical world. So he has to have some understanding of uh, physical, uh, actual scientific uh, cure as well as um, maybe a spiritual uh, approach. Right. And the way that they find out about this is that you you take your hand, you just you just put it into the dirt. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of confusing why this would happen. Um, what is it? <laughs> Leonard's like, look, I've got... I've picked up a lot of patients here because Joel is sick, so I got to go see them. Sorry, I can't hang around for longer, but I'll send someone by with some food. Um, what about the bathroom, though? Like, if Ed has to use the bathroom, I, I'm assuming there's like a like an empty bottle next to him. But that, I don't know. For the other case, I don't know what he, he just does. Has to hold it, I guess. I think he's only there for hopefully less than 24 hours. He's there, I think, overnight. But um, right. But I think Leonard comes like in the morning. Who knows? But it doesn't seem like he's there for 24 hours, I hope. Yeah, I think, I mean, realistically, it's got to be less than 24. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so flashing forward, Leonard returns and uh, digs up Ed's hand. And he says, now open your hand because Ed has clenched his hand. Ed opens his hand and inside is roots, a small bundle of roots. He says um, to Ed, you remember when we dug the hole, there were bugs in this hole. Now there's vole food, uh, tundra mice, like what they, they eat this root. And he says, that's the sign that you are called to being a shaman. But I don't, I don't remember. Is there a reason why that's the sign or something really. new? I think it's like something, yeah, I don't know why, but that's just, that's how you, uh, I don't know how you can tell. I have to say, I like the backdrop of it because it actually, at the pivotal scene when he's saying that like you have been called to this um, to this profession, you see this giant mountain in the background. Mm. And it's the only time mm-hmm. that it comes into play. I think it was actually kind of neat for them to do that. I, I think what they're trying to communicate is that 
there is like this whole larger responsibility now on the horizon. That's yeah. what the mountain symbolizes. Yeah, and it's like a a mountain could symbolize, um, at least for someone who is a hiker or a trekker, it is a goal to be reached, the pinnacle. You know, so it is a new, like you said, a new objective uh, in the on the horizon. And yeah, I didn't key in on that, but if you're right, you know, they don't necessarily frame the shots to include that mountain until this pivotal scene when uh, it is affirmed that there is this new opening or this new direction for Ed to follow. Uh, Now, as a healer, as a shaman, will he accept it? We've got a couple more scenes with Ed, but I wanted to take a quick aside because the next time we are talking about healers and medicine, it's Chris. He's got a monologue on the radio and I'm going to read the full quote. I cannot... I couldn't find a, uh, I couldn't attribute the quote to any specific source. Maybe it's a translation and that's why it's like hard to, like I typed in the exact words into Google um, and the only thing that comes up is Northern Exposure, some articles quoting it and saying like, I don't know where the source is, but I'll just read it. The healer's art at its best is insight wedded to compassion and thus medicine no less than religion is a matter of the spirit of the figurative heart of the soul. True medicine embraces the belief that each and every one of us is important and that we are all under the canopy of heaven alike. Don't know where that's from. I love the poetry and the language. And I guess the message uh, we've talked about a little bit in Joel's plotline, compassion versus this clinical uh, approach of just sort of uh, prescribing this, okay, now off with you, I'm done with you. Like, this is what's wrong. I'll tell you what's wrong. Doesn't matter what you think. Like, this is... This is what I know. Right. I think it's a great quote, but I think that um, if you are actually in the medical community, you might find fault with it because of the concept of triage. Oh, yes. So that's the one where you have to look at a large number of people and determine who gets medical treatment first based on the severity of their injuries or disease, whatever they're whatever that they're suffering from. So one way to interpret it, and of course, like you said, this could be like a mistranslation, some sort of localization that's happening, is that they're saying like everyone is equal. So therefore like under the canopy of this, we you should all have equal treatment. Mm-hmm. And I I agree with that. But like also if you know coming In from that background you're gonna have to have triage yeah. when when you can't uh, right you not everyone to, can be treated like, right you have I to guess. prioritize on like what's happening here yeah so there is fault to that i think it's a it's a, a beautiful philosophy to embrace though um though yeah that may not actually be the truth in in the real world unfortunately so it's good you point that out but we do see ed he's got like a new jacket jeans and uh i think he's like that's him being like, okay, I'm grown up now. You know, like I'm ready to, you're talking about how in that scene with him and Shelly, it's like, they're both, uh, you know, they're both They're adolescents. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and now, I, now he's like ready to be a grown up. And it's really funny because he started the episode in pajamas. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. And now he's dressed uh, more maturely, maybe more um, formally, you could say. But in this scene, uh, he is with uh, Leonard and he's like, I'm ready, let's do this. And Leonard is now suggesting to Ed that he has a choice, actually. Like, it's not like the, you have been called, but it's your choice to accept the call or not. That, you know, Ed, you should give it some thought before you rush into it. And, and there's just like, a, uh, I think this is a scene where they have that whole dialogue. 
And Leonard's like, you know, it's a lot of work. You got to study. You got to do this. It's um, you don't really have a personal life anymore because you are the person who takes care of everyone else. So you have to devote your your life to others in a way. Ed says, well, doesn't it make you feel good when you make people feel well? And of course, Leonard says, yes, but that's not the only part of the job. There's so much work to it, I guess. Right. What's really interesting about this scene is that it has the same exact blocking as Joel and Maggie when they leave Joel's office. Okay, it, that's yeah. the one, yeah, when yeah. he crashes, we go, before he crashes the truck. <laughs> right. The camera tracks in the exact same manner. And it's in the I, same setting, right? It's yeah. the same location. Okay. Same location yeah. and everything. So same I think blocking. they're they're trying to parallel that scene. Yeah, where, those storylines. Yeah, Joel is leaving with Maggie at that point, and Maggie's telling him one thing, and Joel's arguing like, no, 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 like, I'm a doctor, it's this thing. Yeah. And in this particular scene with Leonard and Ed, it's not entirely the same, but they're still going through a dichotomy of ideas yeah. of Ed believing that like you have to go through this way and Leonard saying like, no, it's a choice. Like you, you have agency over your action. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, you have to assume that the director, when he's reading the script with the material, uh, maybe personally the director finds some sort of connection between those two scenes and chooses to film them in the same location. Now, obviously... I don't know if this was in the original script, but in this scene, Leonard is leaving. So he has to get into a truck. He's like, all right, I got to go now. Bye. Um, so maybe that could be why uh, it is set in this location. But you've already made a comparison between those two scenes. And I, you know, we can assume that the director also made uh, some sort of connection between those scenes. And apart from them being shot in the same location, as you mentioned, a lot of the shots, like the, the framing, the composition, the blocking is similar. Right. And we're here talking about the composition, like you're talking about the way that it's arranged on the screen, but we haven't talked about the context of this. And I have to say, I'm not a fan of where this is going, if this is the way that they're Ooh, going to yeah. pursue. So it looks like they're trying to set Ed up in a new direction, but I feel like we haven't gotten like closure over his direction as like a filmmaker. Exactly. I feel like Ed has so many opportunities. I mean, he's a young guy and he does so many different things for the town. But we saw in uh, Soapy Sanderson, while we were on hiatus, uh, we've been doing Patreon, but we've also been, uh, we worked on and completed, produced a video essay on this specific episode. It's the third episode in the first season, Soapy Sanderson. And that's actually the episode when Ed first um, picks up a film camera and we see like the aspirations of being a filmmaker and that's his new direction. And you're right. We've never really gotten full closure on Ed as a filmmaker. Like if you're going to set him up as a shaman now, what about this whole chapter of his life that was a filmmaker? I mean, he's made a few films that we've seen throughout this series, but it didn't feel like he ever reached where he wanted to be as a filmmaker yet. And you could say that... The way this episode ends, it's still sort of, uh, you know, I guess Ed is a shaman now, but not really, not yet. It's like he's still in the status quo because the very final thing we see with Ed is he's walking along like a stream and he's back in his leather jacket. It's just the same old Ed status quo. So, you know, I've seen this series before, but what do you think, Charles? Maybe you've already pointed to it, but what's going on with Ed? What, they, what do you think they're going to try? Well, it's good that they brought up the idea of agency and being able to choose your own identity because it would be really, <laughs> really strange if it was thrust upon him and they changed the direction of his character. 
I don't think it's brought up very organically that he should be um, changing not only career paths, but also like his personality. Because his like rela- on, relationship to other characters right, too. Right. He's going to have, if he's going to be a healer, as Leonard says, you kind of have to give your life to everyone else, give up your life. Right. And, and the reason I'm putting much stock into this is because the episode is titled Three Doctors. So yeah. obviously the first two are Leonard and Joel. The third one would be Ed. So it must have some bearing on the future plot. It doesn't seem like it's a throwaway thing. And that's what worries me. And if we're going off of uh, what you said, the idea of a season premiere might be a launching point for a season arc. This does suggest that Ed is going to pursue further down this path as a shaman. And the episode is noncommittal at the end. You know, Ed is back in his jacket, as I said, his leather jacket. And... um, seems like we're returning to the status quo, but I don't know. The damage is already done. Like it feels like they're setting it up, you know? Okay, Charles, it's that point in our podcast where we like to bring on a guest to talk about the episode. Uh, Typically it's someone who has never seen the show before and we sort of get their outside opinion. But today we're very lucky to have a big fan of the show. In fact, a scholar of Northern Exposure, Michael Samuel, who is a lecturer at Bristol University, also a big fan of Northern Exposure, and an author who's got a new book about Northern Exposure coming out this month. If you're listening to this podcast on November 15th or after, this book will be available. It's called Northern Exposure, A Cultural History. Michael was very kind enough to give us a copy of the book, and I'm loving what I'm reading. Charles, I was going to read some of it first to make sure there's no like major spoilers, but I can say you should definitely check it out, Charles. I recommend, I think the second chapter in the book is about the production history and how the show sort of got started. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting stuff towards the back of the book and the appendices, like as as Michael will mention when we, when we cut to him in a second, uh, there there's episode summaries for every episode. For for this episode, let's see, he's got written, while Ed finds himself waking up in unusual places around Sicily, according to Leonard, an apparent calling from the spiritual world for one to become a shaman, Joel is bound to the bed, having succumbed to a local illness. So he's got like summaries for each episode, some quotes and things like that. And there's also like a fan survey. So if you're a, you may already be familiar with Michael Samuel. He was posting fan surveys for this book, which he's published now in, in the back of this book. Anyway, I've kind of given him a, a long enough introduction. I, I also asked him to introduce himself. So I'll play that and he can speak for himself. Uh, so let's hear from Michael Samuel and then After his introduction, he's going to go straight into talking about today's episode. So before I start today, a big thank you to both Lee and Charles for your invite to be a guest on Northern Overexposure. I'm truly honored. I'm a listener of the podcast, and I really love what you guys do. Though admittedly, I've fallen behind uh, with it in recent weeks and behind with everything following the birth of our first child. So my name is Michael Samuel, and I'm a lecturer here at the University of Bristol in the UK. And I'm the author of Northern Exposure, A Cultural History, part monograph, part love letter to the series that we all adore. The book is about uh, culture as much as it is about the series, namely the show's transformative uh, effect on the landscape of not only television and popular culture since the 1990s, but its transformation on the town of, of Roslyn in Washington State. So this book has been something of a passion project of mine for around five years, uh, though my love of the series far precedes that. 
Now, as I detail in the personal note at the beginning of the book, it is a series that I have had a personal, a familial um, connection to. Uh, I come from a family of television buffs and went on to pursue a visual media and cultural studies education. So it was really no surprise that I would fall in love with the series over time and come to appreciate it on so many levels. And when I set out to pitch this book, I knew I wanted to appeal not only to scholars in the field, you know, written in those overcomplicated sentences, uh, but to be valued by the broad spectrum of Northern Exposure fans united by this series. Northern Exposure, like its fans, is the perfect blend of entertainment and intellectual form. You know, it riffs on philosophy and the banalities and often magic of everyday small-town American life. It's high and lowbrow in its cultural registers. It's profoundly complex, yet deeply simple. And I felt that the book needed to reflect all of this. I really think fans will love it as a book, as a cultural study, as an interpretation, and as an illustrated companion to the series. So just some details on where you can find the book. Um, Northern Exposure Cultural History is published by Roman and Littlefield Press and will be available from mid-November this year. Uh, just a note for fans of the series in the US, uh, please do check the show notes for, for details on how you can get a 30% discount off the cover price. Uh, but until then, thank you very much for, for listening to me, and I really hope you enjoy the book. So good morning from uh, my office at the University of Bristol. Uh, it gives me great pleasure this morning to discuss this episode of Northern Exposure. Um, it's an interesting one for many reasons, uh, not all sort of uh, positive. So it's been a while since I actually watched this season and indeed this episode. Uh, I mean, I, when I started writing the book, I was midway through a rewatch of the series and I just started at season four, which I consider one of the strongest seasons of uh, Northern Exposure. Uh, and then when I came to sort of start thinking about, you know, the recap ideas, which uh, appear towards the end of the book, uh, in which I include sort of brief synopses and in relation to some episodes, reflections, Thinking about this episode in sort of relation to the entire series as a whole just prompted some really interesting thoughts. And so the the episode, yeah, from, from the moment that Ed wakes up in the tree, I think what we've got is the sort of Northern Exposure classic formula. Um, it's got that perfect balance of sort of strangeness and the familiar. And as the episode plays out, uh, we see this sort of confluence then of these sort of broader themes of the series the familiar, the strange, the modern, the traditional, the contemporary uh, versus uh, ancient um, medicine. Uh, we've got rural versus urban life, all sort of in the sort of melting pot of an episode that should in any other season of the show work. Um, but it's my, in my opinion that in this episode, it kind of doesn't or starts to sort of fall apart. And I'll go into this a bit further. So in the episode, uh, there are sort of three narrative strands, as there usually are. The aforementioned narrative thread uh, included uh, involving Ed, sorry, who um, is experiencing sleep flying, where he keeps waking up uh, in trees or, or high places among uh, within uh, Sicily. Uh, we've got Fleischmann's narrative, which um, in which uh, Fleischmann is beginning to experience these strange symptoms, uh, which Marilyn and some of the other uh, others in the native community are sort of immediate to sort of diagnose. Um, and we've 
got Shelley's. Uh, we got sort of remnants of Shelley's narrative, the fact that she's still singing. And I think, uh, I'm not sure about you, but there's a collective sigh in the air around this sort of narrative strand. Um, regarding Fleischmann, uh, the str- sort of strange symptoms that he's experiencing are sort of diagnosed by first by Marilyn and uh, later Ruth Ann and Harlan at, at the brick and later sort of confirmed by um, by Leonard as tundra fever. Um, and I think what we got here is a real sort of hark back to the narrative in season one, the Ayo Ayo episode, where the Russian flu episode, in which you you know instantly have this sort of this conflict between. Uh, Fleischmann's sort of uh, Western contemporary medicine approach and the sort of more holistic uh, Native American approach to medicine. Once again, there's almost a sort of sense of repetition and a sort of cyclical quality in this episode that really does hark back and, in my opinion, sort of recycle some of those earlier episodes and those earlier narratives and, you know, can't help but wonder... Uh, you know, what was there a, were the were the writers at a loss for ideas? So the episode was directed by Daniel Atias, who's a sort of seasoned director of television, and this will be relevant now. But um, seasoned because you know, he, following Northern Exposure, it's a name that we find littered across. If you take a look at his name on IMDb, you've got the likes of episodes of The Wire, True Blood, True Detective, um, which uh, I co-wrote a book on. Uh, the Killing, the U.S. Um, adaptation of the of the Danish uh, series. We've got Homeland, uh, The Boys, and of course The Sopranos. And obviously, there's another connection there with Northern Exposure. Um, and in regard to Northern Exposure, he's a director who's directed five episodes. In terms of the writing of the episode, and the reason why I sort of almost scratched my head at the quality of the writing of this episode, it's directed by you know two of the sort of main voices of Northern Exposure, in my opinion, Diane Frolov and Andrew Snyder, um, who've written some of the best and probably the most award-winning episodes of the series. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, some of their other episodes and uh, your opinion of this episode. And do, do you think they've, uh, were lacking ideas? No, I don't mean to come down hard on this episode. I think, I think it's a good episode. I, I think it contains all the ingredients of what makes Northern Exposure Northern Exposure. However, I think there's an imbalance and there are several sort of imbalances that I'd like to just call attention to in this episode. First of all, the pacing. Now, it's, a, it's an episode that almost, and a season that almost does away with the sort of upbeat pacing that had a sort of cohesion about it, it uh, a cohesiveness, sorry. It had a sense of, uh, of Northern Exposure's character sort of uh, distilled in the, in the film grammar. What we get in this episode is a is a slower, darker tone. There's almost a lingering quality to the scenes. Um, and if you take a look at some of the scenes in this episode, they're almost left hanging. They're almost inserted in there and characters are like waiting around at the end of a scene um, rather than cut into the next scene. They create that sort of fun juxtapositions that we, we're so usually used to in Northern Exposure. In terms of the physicality of the episode, it's a... Uh, I'm not sure if it's the quality of the print uh, that I was viewing it on, but it's an episode in which the TV sets are accentuated. Uh, there's almost a sense like you're permanently in a studio, whereas it kind of lacks that on-location quality, uh, Northern Exposure, once again, I find so charming in the series. That said, I'm quite a fan of, of when sets reveal themselves in sitcoms and you know, famously, I think back to some of the sets on Frasier, or uh, Friends uh, or Seinfeld when, you know, you almost see the scenes 
wobble because um, obviously, of course, there is sort of a studio set in in Los Angeles or or, or somewhere else. Um, as I said, there's a there's a sort of uh, disjunction with the tone of this episode, I think, and there's almost a, an absence of both drama and humour. Um, once again, that sort of award-winning formula that you know Northern Exposure really did help pioneer in the early '90s that dramedy. Um, and I think you know the the two scenes in which uh, I sort of encourage you to go back to and sort of think about. There's the scene in which Fleischman gets into his car after speaking briefly with O'Connell. And the car sort of veers off road and crashes. It's a very awkward scene. There's no humor and there's no sense of danger to it. We almost watch it play out as expecting what's going to happen. But at the same time, it almost serves no purpose. We know Fleischmann is practically sleepwalking. His fever is, uh, is almost crescendoed. And we know his health has gone AWOL. It's just almost a pointless scene. And secondly, the happy birthday scene, the scene in which uh, Shelley sings a very flat uh, rendition of Happy Birthday at the Brick. Once again, it's a scene that I feel just does not land. Um, in terms of in terms of the camera work, uh, once again, this is why I mentioned Daniel Attias's name at the, the uh, just earlier on. Uh, it's for some reason the camera moves a lot in this episode, and I really don't understand the reasons why. And you're coming from a film studies background, we often think about the the psychology of of the camera, how it moves, and how that creates meaning. And there's almost meaningless to the movement in this episode in Non-Exposure. Take a look at some of those scenes in which your characters are sat in bed or sat in a chair and the camera just moves around them for some reason. Uh, it doesn't add anything to the, to the scene. It, if anything, it distracts from the dialogue because you know, you've got the camera moving at the same time as the script is moving forward. And I just find the entire thing off button. And lastly, and I think you know this might sort of tie it to the sort of the overall feeling in the in the writer's room, which we of course know know bits about through sort of interviews that have uh, surfaced later on. There's almost an angry, anger or a sort of bitterness to this script. And of course, immediately my mind darts back to that scene between Fleischman and O'Connell when Fleischman snaps at O'Connell. There's, you know, a genuine anger, there's a genuine dislike of character that is almost out of character for these will-they-won't-they they couple in the series. And it's an anger that O'Connell, against her entire sort of politics and her identity as a character, as a strong character, chooses to forget. Uh, to quote from the series, when Fleischmann tries to apologise later after his uh, fever is, has lowered, um, O'Connell refuses to accept his apology, explaining that she's simply forgot about it. She wanted to stop... Um, uh, so quote sorry I wanted to stop being mad at you unquote there's a sense from this quote there's almost the abandonment of the formula that made at least the first four seasons of Northern Exposure so special now we get a sense around season three that O'Connell and Fleischmann are not going to end up together uh, you know despite our sort of uh, our wants and desires and I think by season four we learn to accept that they're better as characters as friends Nonetheless, that formula and that tension needs to exist, otherwise there's no series. Um, and there are several moments in this series in which it abandons its central themes. When Fleischmann accepts he's a Sicilian, it eliminates that tension between the, the rural and the urban. And secondly, I think there are scenes like this when uh, like O'Connell and Fleischmann abandon that formula that made their sort of dynamic so special. 
Now, it seems like I'm really sort of um, coming down hard on this episode, and I, I really don't want to. As I said, I think it's a, it's a perfectly fine episode. And, you know, some of the even stronger elements of it are the, the, the wardrobe. And in particular, one of my favorite characters returns in this, scene, in this episode to Leonard, whose cardigan game is so strong. Um, and Leonard, I think, really is the sort of, really is the cornerstone of this episode. Not only is he the catalyst for Dr. Fleischmann, um, you know, coming to sort of terms with uh, his diagnosis and the catalyst for that theme that sort of, thank God, you know, really uh, continues that theme between uh, sort of modern medicine and, and more ancient um, medicine. But he's also the catalyst for Ed and his journey on to, um, to being a shaman, uh, identifying his sleep flying as a diagnosis of um, a sort of call to be a shaman. And, you know, he begins sort of facilitating that, that entire storyline, which I have problems with in that Ed almost abandons his filmmaking ambitions. Uh, but it's still a very good storyline. Now, I mean, just to sort of wrap it up, I think, you know, some of the negativity around this episode is possibly linked to the writing room and the, it goes straight to the top of that writing room and uh, credited for this season, uh, season's arc, is David Chase, who's the sort of story editor. And, you know, if any of you are sort of familiar with Chase in, in the public spectrum, I mean, he's the creator of The Sopranos and has done some just wonderful writing for television. But he's an outspoken critic of television all the same uh, since his experiences on The Rockford Files and Northern Exposure. He is someone who, at this point in his life, hates television. And we, I think there's certainly a sense of that sort of vibrating through the script of season five, the direction the storylines and the characters. They're transformations which I think Northern Exposure never recovers from. And I think maybe the blame is laid at the feet of David Chase. Who knows? I'll leave that open to the community to decide. But it's already been 13 minutes and I think I've taken enough of your time uh, this morning. Thank you very much for listening to my thoughts. Thank you uh, to, to Lee and Charles for in, uh, inviting me to be a guest on this week's uh, podcast, which I'm a massive fan of. So thank you all. Thank you all for listening. And I hope you enjoy the book. And please do reach out to me on Twitter, um, at Mike Samuel 8. Thank you. Well, I guess it goes to show that the people who love the show are the ones who will be the most critical about it. That's true. Yeah. I mean, we we like to criticize as well, you know, on this podcast. I try to you know, approach everything as kindly as possible. But I mean, it's hard to deny. We kind of talked about this up front. This is, uh, we, we, we polled fans online and the overwhelming majority seem to be very upset that David Chase is show running this season. And I think Michael kind of talks about this throughout his, his review of this episode, uh, particularly focusing on the writing room um, for this episode, as he mentioned, it's uh, Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider, who have given us some fabulous episodes of Northern Exposure. Some of the best, you know, the the fan favorites were written by Diane Frolov, Andrew Schneider. Um, so it's interesting to see now this, uh, specifically what Michael is pointing out, like, what do you think was going on? What, what do we think about this episode? And I was actually, I, I didn't think about it too much, but I'm sure there's a lot more about this and maybe more in the book as I continue reading in, in Michael's book, but sort of, I like how he focused on sort of like the anger in, in some of the writing in this, in this episode, I think particularly the, the scene 
where Joel is just unloading on Maggie. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting angle too that I don't think we talked about a lot. So uh, Mr. Samuel talks about the pacing. He's talking about how how characters are left hanging and that in terms of physicality, the TV sets are much more accentuated rather than being shot on location. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he talks about this anger that's being present throughout it. And I don't think it's like the same thing as the anger that he was saying that David Chase was having on television, <laughs> but I, which I want to talk about more. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think that it's really interesting that like you, like we said at the beginning of this episode, they're obviously going for a much more melodramatic, emotional field approach of creating conflicts between the townsfolk themselves, making it a very us versus them dichotomy. And I guess the easiest emotion to tap into that would be anger. Yeah, I guess I don't know how much of that is. I mean, obviously this script was handed in by Diane Frohlove and Andrew Schneider, but I wonder how much... David Chase is pulling the strings. Certain choices, you know, we've talked about the beginning of a season of television. You know, you might say that is sort of a thesis statement for like where we're going to go this season. Not always, but we approached this episode kind of like that. Certain story threads like Ed now having this calling to become a shaman. It's just an interesting sort of left turn to take. I I wonder if some of these storylines, these pushes were dictated by, you know, David Chase or the the writer's room and and Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider just had to sort of write for that. And we talked about it. We're, we're thankful that at the end of this episode, it's still sort of suggested that Ed, you know, he had a choice. He, he wasn't going to like wake up tomorrow and start training to be a shaman. He he still puts on his leather jacket in, in the final scene that we see him in. But um, but yeah, it, even though it's um, not necessarily like an immediate choice, it still feels like it's coming. You know, it feels like that's where they're pushing this story arc. Sorry, I feel like I've kind of gone off on a tangent here, but no, no, things no, no. like that where, where it, it kind of feels like maybe maybe the writers were directed in certain directions to go. Yeah, I agree with you. And in fact, to add on to what you're saying, I think it's a possibility that David Chase got on to the show and he was thinking like, you know, you're already at this progress in the show, but I'm going to reset it back to square one Mm. so that I can go toward a new path. Yeah. So instead of just like starting off on a new path immediately, like let's say we're at like 75%, he's like, we're bringing it all the way back down to zero. Uh, back to where Maggie and Joel just hate each other. And then, for, you know, now that I've set the tone and the pace, that's where we're going to go from here, which would explain a little bit about the recycled plot lines mm. that we were already had. Uh, Mr. Samuel talks about how the writers were at a loss for ideas. Possibility that at the, you know, at the time of writing, they were thinking like, well, nothing speaks more than, you know, re- reverting back to square one than going back to rehashed plot lines. Yeah. You know, it is really fun just to picture David Chase as like this evil mastermind. <laughs> like I think of the scene <laughs> where Joel unloads on Maggie. You know, I talked about this before. It is kind of funny, but it does go, it kind of goes a little too far. And I almost imagine like Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider are, you know, sending like some 
pages to David Chase and he sees this scene and he's like, yes, more, enhance, like more, I need more. <laughs> Anger fuels me, you know? Uh, but I guess, yeah. you know, what you're saying, like maybe there are times when it feels like, uh, it feels strange because the the friends and the um, community is sort of pitted against each other in certain ways. They're trying to at least amplify more uh, interpersonal conflicts. Right. And to, you know, to mimic that, like we had talked about before, what Mr. Samuels had touched on, they really changed like all the aspects of it, like the camera work, the TV set, all that. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if they're here trying to say like, we're going to make a statement that there's new people running this place. Or they were thinking like, we're, we're, uh, we're in uncharted territory. Let's just see what happens when we also go in uncharted territory in terms of all these other aspects right there. I mean, personally, like we said, like many fans uh, were displeased at the way that the show is going. I am also not a fan of like changing up two aspects. Like mm-hmm. you're already changing the character aspect, like the writing aspect, and now you're changing the filmmaking aspect. It's like maybe you just focus on one and then like slowly <laughs> transition to the other one. It's very difficult to hit both of them at the same time. Yeah. Um, like we touched upon earlier in the episode, I don't think there's been like that many successful television shows that have got like a completely new showrunner right. and like really changed a show's dynamic and it, it went on to be successful. Yeah, I think I sort of stated something like this earlier in our episode, but in theory, the idea of like changing showrunners, the new showrunner wanting to like try something new, like, you know, you you can't, you can't like reinvent that magic. You know, if you're not Brandon Falsey, or if you're not like who was originally there, something is new. It's it's going to be different. So embrace that. But I think just from what I understand and maybe what we're starting to feel is like the philosophy of David Chase, his philosophies do not at all line up. In fact, uh, he's sort of against what a lot of Brandon Falsey thought about what Northern Exposure was. Uh, I liked what Michael Samuel just said about uh, David Chase there at the end. He says, David Chase was an outspoken critic of television. And at the time, at this point in his life, he was uh, very vocal about hating television. So just kind of not being in a, a very comfortable place with this series. And then also these writers who have been working on the series for so long are now put in the same room with this person who has very different ideas, I guess, than they. Yeah, so it seems like he was an angry young man just lashing out at the world. And I, I have to ask, like, really, has there ever been a creator whenever they're embroiled into their own thoughts and they hate the medium that they're working in? Has that ever produced something that's really good? So, like, let's say there's, like, a playwright and he just really doesn't like the direction that the theater community is pulling in and he decides to write a play. Now, has it ever really been successful? Yeah, well, I mean... No, I think like, uh, I mean, I'm not an art scholar or historian, but I think that a lot of uh, artistic movements are reactionary to what came before. So I do think, yeah, I think that is what happens in art. You know, the Nouveau Vague or whatever, the uh, French New Wave is, or like American New Wave or Hollywood New Wave, it's in response to what came before and sort of rebelling against what came before. So I think it, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with being That's angry true. and like rebelling against what came before. But I guess if you just hate what you're doing, I don't know, there's probably something that I could find an example for. But yeah, I, I think I see what you're saying. If you hate what you're doing, it might be. Um, 
But then again, I don't know. I'm not David Chase and I'm not David Chase in the 90s. So I don't know exactly what was going on with, I'm, I'm definitely making a lot of inferences here. So I don't want to, yeah, I don't yeah. want to say like, this man I, hated, I, I agree. He hated his job. This is why, you know, I don't know. Right. Like it, it, there's an argument to be made that like maybe television back in the day was like really formulaic and he wanted to break the mold and he was displeased at um, what, what the current trajectory of what he thought it was going to head toward because at the time there wasn't like you know obviously his own surveillance hadn't come on board uh the wire wasn't existing uh oz wasn't alive like many of the critically acclaimed hbo television shows that we know about aren't here so i can i can see the displeasure it just seems like i'm coming at it probably from a naive point of view but i think that like if you come from a place of hate and you're trying to apply it to the medium in which you're working in, oftentimes that thing won't uh, be nearly as successful if you had used that uh, hate and tried to channel it into something much more productive. He is a Sith Lord. I can just see it. Uh, (laughs) Um, That's just the way I want to approach it. But like, again, like maybe he just got dealt a bad hand. Like we don't, we don't know that we're, we're just, we're, we're guessing. Yeah. And especially with a show like Northern Exposure, like that's such a positive and it is like, I've heard some valid criticisms of Northern Exposure about it being like idyllic. And like, this is kind of, uh, I, I really don't want to like talk bad about the episode Sicily. I know that's a very fan favorite episode, but I remember when I rewatched it for the podcast, I did feel like it was a little too fanciful, uh, though it does have, I, I mean, there's obviously amazing moments in that. Um, in that episode, I believe it won Golden Globes or Emmys. Like that is a fantastic episode of television. But I can see where the criticism to such positivity might uh, might come from. But uh, <laughs> but I also wanted to point out here too. I I almost feel bad for Michael Samuel, and I know he was uh, saying himself he he doesn't want to beat down this episode too much because he thinks it's a fine episode. And, you know, we enjoyed ourselves talking about this episode, Charles, earlier on. And yeah, I just want to reiterate that this guy is the real deal. He is a, he's a big fan of Northern Exposure and you can tell from his writing. So I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I just think it's really interesting to hear and just listen to him talk at length about uh, Northern Exposure, even if it is um, underlining these criticisms that we're talking about with David Chase and, uh, the fears that we have entering this new season, uh, if it's if it's all downhill from here, or um, I don't know, I think we might have some some diamonds in the rough every once in a while. I remember enjoying this season more or less. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah. So if you've ever wanted to read about Northern Exposure in an academic setting, like having it presented in a more scholarly manner, then please check out. His book, Northern Exposure, A Cultural History, it should be being released on November 15th of this year with a special offer of 30% off using the purchase code in our description. So again, thank you to Mr. Samuels for coming onto the podcast. Thank you for sharing with us your thoughts about it without holding any punches to it. And if you want to hear more about what he says, again, please check out his book. Yes. Thank you so much, Michael Samuel, for your dedication to the show and for coming on to the podcast. Uh, we're really pleased to feature you and I've been enjoying the book and Charles, we got to get you started reading now that I've kind of tried to, um, you know, look out for any spoilers that you might run into. I think it's fairly safe for you to start reading this. Well, Charles, we're done for this episode, but next week we're going to be coming back to talk about season five, episode two. The title of this episode is 
The Mystery of the Old Curio Shop. What does that elicit in your mind? Any predictions for what we've got in store next next week? Uh, definitely sounds like a mystery novel. Sounds like something like a Sherlock Holmesian thing right here. Yeah. Hopefully somebody's going to be putting on a Deerstalker hat. So wait, the deer. St- what is that? Interesting. Oh, that's what Holmes that's the hat wears. That uh, Sherlock Holmes wears. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Yeah, we got some. I mean, mystery is in the title, so um, great. That's All true. right. Well, Charles, <laughs> I'll I'll talk to you next week. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Michael Samuel for being our guest analyst. His book will be available on Amazon, and you can use our discount code in the episode description to get 30% off. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.